Nakumo, the court. Alors, dans le dossier de procureur général du Québec contre procureur général du Canada et al. et entre procureur général du Canada contre procureur général du Québec, for the intervener, Attorney General of Manitoba, Heather Leonoff, KC, and Catherine Hart. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Lee Greathead and Heather Cochran. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Nicholas Parker, Matthew Parent, and Angela Croteau. For the intervener, Attorney General of the Northwest Territories, Trisha Paradzi, Sandra Jungles, and John C.T. Inglis. For the intervener, Grand Council of Treaty Number Three, Robert James KC and Naomi Moses. Pour l'intervenante uh, Inu, Takwakan Washat Mac Maniutenam, agissant comme bande traditionnelle et au nom des Inu de Washat Mac Maniutenam, Marie-Claude André Grégoire, James A. O'Reilly. Michel Corbu et Vincent Carney. For the intervener, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, Michael Seed, Nicholas Dodd, Rosa Victoria Adams. For the intervener, Pigwis Child and Family Services, Earl C. Stevenson, Afez Khan. For the intervener, Native Women's Association of Canada, Sarah Niman and Kira Poirier. For the Intervenor Council of Yukon First Nations, Tammy Shranik, James M. Cody Casey, and Darren Lees. For the Intervenor Indigenous Bar Association in Canada, Paul Seaman and Cam Cameron. For the Intervenor Chiefs of Ontario, Maggie Wente, Krista Nerland, and Jesse Abel. For the Intervenor Inuvialuit Original Corporation, Catherine Ansel, Christy Zhang, and Todd Orvitz. For the intervener, Inuit Tapirit Kanatami et al., Alisa Flaherty Spence, Brian A. Crane Casey, Graham Reagan, and Kate Darling. <coughs> For the intervener, Nunat. Nunatukavut Community Council, Jason T. Cook, Ashley Hamp, Gonsalves. For the Intervenor Lands Advisory Board, William Bay Anderson. For the Intervenor Miti National Council et al., Jason T. Madden, Alexander Depard, and Emily Lahaye. For the Intervenor Listugui Mimikmak Government, Zachary Davis, Ryland, and Wayman. For the Intervenor Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, Andrew Loken and Linus Awe. For the Intervenor First Nations Family Advocate Office, Joel Pastor Rasala, 
Alison Fenske. For the Intervenor Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, David Otterbridge, Craig Gilchrist, Rebecca Amo. For the Intervenor First Nations of the Manult Treaty Society, Megan M. Giltro Casey, Lisa C. Adlowaki, and Natalia Sudeko. For the Intervenor Tribal Chiefs Ventures Inc., Aaron Christoph, and Brent Murphy. For the Intervenor Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs et al., Gib Vanert and Fraser Artland. For the Intervenor David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Jessica Orkin, Nate Chelson, and Cheryl Milne. For the Intervenor Regroupement Petapan, François G. Tremblay, Christina Caron, Benoit Amio, and Thomas Doherty. For the Intervenor Canadian Constitution uh, Foundation, Jesse Artery, Simon Boutier, Alison Spiegel. For the Intervenor Carrier Sakani Family Services Society et al., Scott A. Smith. For the Intervenor Conseil des Atikamekw d'Apitiwan, Frédéric Boilly, Kevin Ajmo, Stephanie Ajmo, Jean-François de Lille. For the Intervenor Vancouver Aboriginal Child and Family Services Society, Kate Brown and Maxim Fay. For the Intervenor Nishabi Aski Nation, Julian Ann Falconer, Christopher Rapson, and Mitchell Goldenberg. Heather Linoff. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I intend to spend my time today focusing on some of the questions that arose last day. Let me begin by saying that Manitoba accepts that under the Vanderpeet test, there is a right of Indigenous communities to care for their children and families. Manitoba accepts that all of these communities did so pre-contact and that they continue to have that right which is now recognized and affirmed by Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. For this reason, Manitoba supports the constitutionality of the majority of the provisions of the Federal Act. However, it is our position that the Quebec Court of Appeal was correct in finding the paramountcy sections of the Act unconstitutional. Our submission is that these sections fail to recognize the authority of the provinces to justifiably limit treaty and Aboriginal rights for valid public policy reasons, and in so doing, alters Canada's constitutional architecture. In supporting a right to self-government, Manitoba stresses the word self. In making space for self-government within the existing constitutional framework, Manitoba submits that it is essential to draw a distinction between self-government and public government. Under our Constitution, public government is assigned exclusively to the provinces in Canada. It is the public government that is democratically elected by the public at large, including by its Indigenous residents. It is the public government that has the responsibility to set public policy, to expend public funds, and to employ and manage a public civil service. In contrast, Manitoba defines self-governments as giving communities the right to make laws, rules, and regulations 
about the exercise of their own Aboriginal and treaty rights. Thus to follow up from a question from Justice Jamal last day. It is Manitoba's position that for the purposes of this appeal, the right to self-government does not need to be seen as a new right, but rather it fits comfortably within the court's existing jurisprudence. Self-government is about how a community manages its Aboriginal and treaty rights, such as the right to harvest, the right to the use and enjoyment of title lands, and in the current context, how a community looks after its children and families. Self-government... Is it your submission then, is it your submission that the right of self-government is parasitic to, and, and therefore dependent upon the recognition of an underlying right? It is for the purposes of this appeal, what happens in the future, but for the purposes of this appeal, Manitoba says we do not need to go beyond Aboriginal and treaty rights. What we're talking about is the management of those rights. For example, you have a right to harvest, you have a right to say as a community, we will not harvest during the spawn. That's a law that we're making. So yes, parasitic uh, uh, as part of existing Aboriginal and treaty rights. How would you define and that existing Aboriginal and treaty right that it's parasitic to? Exactly the same way as it was defined in Delgamook uh, and Vanderpeet. We see that Canada's uh, definition that they offer in their factum is just restating Delgamook and Vanderpeet. Uh, it doesn't add anything. The court's jurisprudence for the past 40 years tells us about Aboriginal and treaty rights and the self-government part of that is managing them. And I can say that no court has ever ruled that there is uh, a right to look after children and families. But as Justice Martin says, it's obvious. We don't need a trial. We don't need a lot of evidence. We don't need to expend a lot of money. Manitoba accepts that there's a right to look after your children as an Aboriginal right. Well, let's, uh, let's be specific, though, because these, the Act talks about a certain priority of considerations relevant to best interests. For example, in Section 10 uh, and then uh, 11 on uh, rules relating to the provision of services, presumably then all this legislation all needs to be justified under the Sparrow test, as would all prior exercises of federal jurisdiction in respect of what you say is a, an established... Um, Aboriginal right to care for children. Really everything since Confederation would need to have been justified because it would have been an infringement prima facie under Sparrow, wouldn't it? No, it will not be an infringement unless it, it is something that limits it. In fact, this legislation doesn't limit it. It, it, it expands it. It, it's, it makes it robust. Well, it creates, what, na it creates national standards. And, and, I mean, that in itself is a limit, is it not? If an indigenous group was to say um, these national standards are in some way uh, limiting, then yes, the federal government would have to justify it. But from Manitoba's perspective, the important point is that when there is something that, that infringes on the public's interest, that is when you get an infringement. When you are doing something that that when the indigenous government is doing something that infringes on the public's interest, there is a need for the provinces 
to be able to justify infringements. And what happens in this legislation is it takes that away from the provinces. But yes, if, if something, if the federal government is limiting a right to self-government, then yes, it would have to justify it in the same way that if the province is limiting a right to self-government, it would have to justify it. So the important point from Manitoba's perspective is that the paramountcy uh, questions um, is that when we look at paramountcy, the standard test that we use is are both laws constitutional and do they conflict? But Manitoba says that when Indigenous laws are added to the mix, that it becomes a three-part test that is appropriate. Obviously, both laws need to be valid, and there must be a conflict before the third step is considered. And that third step is to ask whether the provincial law can be justified as in serving an important public policy interest. And that's the same for the federal government. If they're going to infringe, they need to show that their infringement... Uh, uh, Madam, I uh, would suggest to you that the courts are going to be very, very busy. The courts are not going to be busy if we, if we agree that the right to self-government is a treaty and aboriginal right that can be in, infringed, but it has to be infringed for valid public policy reasons. It's not, it doesn't operate outside of our constitution. And this court said in Chicoten that the provinces could infringe treaty and Aboriginal rights. We can infringe hunting rights for, for public policy reasons. We can infringe land rights for public policy reasons. Uh, th that's, that's been this court's jurisprudence for 40 years. So, Justice Cote asked a question last day. She asked, what happens if the paramountcy provisions are repealed in, in the current act? And the answer is that a provincial law that met the Sparrow and Chicotin tests would then be paramount. It is precisely because the paramountcy sections in the federal act purport to take this provincial authority away that we argue they are unconstitutional. To be clear, it is Manitoba's position that Canada cannot make Indigenous laws enacted by Indigenous governments paramount to provincial law through any mechanism. It is no answer to Manitoba's position for Canada to argue that the legislation at, at issue is merely incorporation by reference. As Justice Cote comment, commented yesterday, there has to be a legal basis for the Indigenous law. And that legal basis is set out in multiple sections of the Act, is Section 35. But this court was clear in Chicago. Well, what's stated, the, what's stated in the Act is an understanding of what Section 35 states. That, exactly. doesn't, that doesn't necessarily give it legal force. Why, no, why not can't, at all. Why can't, the, why can't the basis be Section 9124? Because Section 9124 is not a magic wand. It can't alter provincial constitutional authority. Well, well, it, but, but, whoa, whoa. I mean, your, your, your answer didn't even address the jurisprudence that speaks of a very wide scope 
that the courts have given to Section 9124. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't help to come at me with a rhetorical sort of thing about a magic wand. What, what's no. the, what's the law that supports your contention that 9124 is not sufficient? 9124 is sufficient to create this uh, a form of legislation, not this legislation. This legislation was based on 35. 9124 is sufficient to create some form of legislation, but that form of legislation cannot alter the province's authority under, to justify infringements of laws that are made by Indigenous governments under Section 35. If it's entirely 9124, which this Act is not, then that would have to be something that would be considered. All right. but I'm not sure I understand. I thought the only basis for Parliament to legislate was under Section 91 of the Constitution. Are you saying there's some other basis for Parliament to legislate? Parliament legislated under Section 9124, but it gave the Indigenous groups the power to make their own laws under Section 35. Their laws are made under Section 35. Listen, listen to yourself. Parliament gave them the right under Section 35. That is not something for Parliament to do. Pa Parliament, Parliament recognized my, my mistake in language. Parliament recognized their right to make laws under Section 35. My mistake in All right. language. I think your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. Lee Greathead. Chief Justice, Justices, BC has a condensed book that we will be relying on today. Yesterday, Canada, Canada made a concession. Uh, uh, Council for Canada said that if Section 18 fails, then the rest of the Federal Act fails as well. BC disagrees with that. We say that um, BC has, uh, supports the federal legislation, and we say that even if Section 18 failed for some reason, the rest of the Act could uh, continue. And we say this because if you look at what uh, Section 18 does, what it does is it declares the law. It says that uh, Section 35 includes a Indigenous, um, a right of, of Indigenous people to make laws concerning their children and families. And we say that that is a separation of powers problem, not a division of powers problem. So that um, if there was any issue with Section 18, um, that issue is as a separation of powers problem between the court um, and Parliament, not an issue of division of powers. So any answer to that, if there was a problem with Section 18, uh, the rest of the Act uh, could continue to exist. Can I ask you and this? If, if Section 18 is the basis, if it's Section 35, then Sparrow would apply, as the court ultimately determines how Sparrow applies. If it's not, if it's a delegated authority and not under Section 18, wouldn't that mean that Paramount C applies? Uh, 
Yes, it could, and we will be making submissions about the limits on Section um, 9124 uh, and the relationship to provincial laws. But, so but I, I, the my only point is, doesn't the analysis change depending on what the source of the authority is? Right, and we say that Canada's authority to make laws with respect to Indigenous people and their ability to, uh, the Indigenous people to make laws about their children and families is coming from 1924. And uh, a graphic way to demonstrate that is if you put yourself back in time, back before any day before April 17th, 1982, and ask, could Canada have a law that um, recognizes an inherent right of Indigenous people to make laws concerning their children and families and sets up the mechanisms upon which to do that, we say the answer would be yes. And the coming into force of Section 35 didn't take that power away, um, which, uh, which is another reason that we say even if this court were to find a problem with Section 18, of the federal act, um, that doesn't mean that the rest of the act would fail. I guess just to follow up on section 21 says also, I'm wondering if that's a, um, a, a basis for your submission that either way you, you end up in the same place because there are two different routes that are identified. Yes, I, be I believe that's right. I mean, our central point is that um, um, that Section 18 could go and the rest of the Act um, uh, would still remain intact. There would be the issue with Section 18 is not something that would um, indicate that that the, the remaining provisions had no force. And another relevant point on that is that um, it's always open to the federal government to expand the rights uh, beyond um, section, uh, what, 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 what would be required in section 35 for further support that even if this court were to find a problem with section 18, the rest of the act would uh, remain in force. May I ask you this question? The Attorney General of British Columbia, like Manitoba, um, says that there is an, an inherent right under Section 35 to have uh, control over children. We have submissions from other uh, provinces and we have submissions from Quebec that go the other way. What are we to do with those competing positions? Uh, Justice Martin, well, one thing on, on um, the... Um, the, uh, as to whether you need to answer that question, uh, what's encompassed by Section 35 and whether it does contain this inter inherent right, we say you wouldn't need to answer it to determine um, the question before you, the, the, the question that um, has been put forward on whether the federal act is valid or not, but on the competing purpose, competing um, interpretations of whether it includes that inherent right, we do in our factum set out um, why we say that section 35 does recognize and infirm an inherent right for indigenous people to make laws about their children and families. 
and it um, stems from uh, an understanding that Indigenous rights were not created by Section 35, that it's obvious that Indigenous people have had children and families and rules with respect to their children and families, and that, that even um, we, we in our factum outline the, the, the fact that courts have recognized Indigenous lawmaking power, especially in the area of marriage and adoptions, going right back to the time of shortly after Confederation, and, um, and that, that interpretation is also supported by international instruments. Why has the obviousness test that you've just referred to been applied in respect of the right to hunt? to fish, the right to land. Why hasn't that obviousness test been applied in other areas and instead we require evidence, we have a jurisprudential test under Vanderbeet? Yes, um, well, there was, there was some evidence here. Uh, Council for Canada did uh, uh, comment yesterday on the report from Dr. Napoleon. Um, and uh, he, here I think that um, with, with other issues, uh, it's just not that obvious that, uh, that um, this question about whether um, Indigenous people had, um, had rules with respect to their families, that they had children, it's just beyond dispute that that um, did occur. May I ask, may I, just so I can understand your position, I, I do see you saying on the Vires question that the act would be valid under 9124, but on the, the effective character of what, what the Court of Appeal and, and, uh, and uh, the parties have described as, as part two of the act, is, is your position that that would or would not be effective, as described yesterday as a nullity in the absence of a Section 35 foundation, if there was no such foundation? In other words, do we have to go beyond the virus question in order, in order to uphold the act? No, uh, we say you do not, that, that the answer does lie in um, Section 9124, um, and that, that uh, for the reasons that I stated earlier as to why we disagree with the concession that Canada made. But why then did you answer the question about also in Section 21 as being an allusion to the Section 35 uh, foundation of, of Indigenous laws? The, I, I, I don't see how they can both work. If, if the operation of Sections 20, 20 and 21 require the Section 35 foundation, your friends yesterday, or at least some of them, said, well, the act requires it for the mechanics of the act to work. And so you would disagree with that as well, beyond the, con the so-called concession, which I think might not be the best word for that because it was, of course, on a question of law binding nobody, but, or at least nobody on this side of the table, but, but uh, I'd like your thoughts on that. Yes, and... Um I, we do have uh, submissions on um, the, the breadth and the effect of uh, Section 9124 that I think does address the issue with the concerns over Sections um, 
21 and 22 sub 3. Um, and that's where we wanted to refer to, because we do say there are limits on the federal government's jurisdiction to make laws with respect to um, indigenous people and indigenous people's ability to make laws concerning their children. And the, those limits come within the 91-24 test. Um, and, and we have recent legislation in our uh, condensed book that uh, BC has recently enacted that I think shows this tension. And it can be found at tab two of the condensed book. And just before I get to it, um, there are some general principles, I think, that guide the interpretation of section, um, the parameters of section 9124. And that is, we acknowledge that that power is broad. We acknowledge that the federal government can set national standards. But importantly for this case is the issue of overlap. Um, and that um, um, because it is the provinces that are providing the services, there needs to be restrictions on the power exercised by 9124 uh, to make sure that uh, th these levels of government are mutually modified. All right, so, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I wouldn't ask you to conclude. Your time is up. So I just would ask then that to uh, look at section 4.2 um, at uh, uh, tab tab five um, and page four and five of our BC's draft legislation and it, it um, also deals with conflict of laws and sets out a mechanism as to how federal and provincial laws could work together. All right, thank you very much. Nicholas Parker. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of Alberta intends to make submissions on two main points. First, the inappropriateness of this context in which to make determinations of constitutional rights. And second, the constitutionality of sections 18 to 22 of the Act. In Alberta's submission, there is only one question this court needs to answer on this reference, and that is the virees of this Act. As addressed in Part A of Alberta's Factum, a reference is not the appropriate context in which to make determinations of constitutional rights. With great respect to the Court of Appeal, this is not a reference re an inherent right of self-government, much less is it a reference re a generic and universal inherent right of self-government. The context is not appropriate, this context is not appropriate in which to overturn 40 years of jurisprudence on the issue of the test for Aboriginal rights. Any consideration of an adaptation of the Vanderpeet test should be incremental and considered in an appropriate factual setting. There are factual and evidentiary deficiencies that demonstrate that this court cannot and should not render a decision on the existence of a Section 35 right of self-government in this proceeding. These deficiencies are fatal. This court has reminded us that constitutional issues should not be decided in a factual vacuum. The proper characterization of an asserted right, which is framed by the facts and the evidence, is necessary to determine the scope and content of an asserted right. May I just, I'd like to interrupt you here in terms of the factual context. I mean, there is a, sort of a, a, a position that was taken by the Attorney General of Canada that there is such a, an inherent right to self-government. 
there is uh, affidavits that are in place. But most importantly, we have uh, cases that talk about the history of nation-to-nation -nation relationships. And we have five volumes of a royal commission. We have a TRC. We have the Viennes Commission. We have a multiplicity of um, uh, authoritative works that spell out uh, the importance of children to a people, to a culture, and what happens when uh, that is interrupted. Um, what more evidence would possibly be required to establish, even on the Vanderpeek test, that this is um, that this is something that falls within an Aboriginal right? Thank you, Justice Martin. The uh, evidence before the Court of Appeal was general in nature. It was um, uh, historic and social uh, evidence uh, in the main as to Canada's mistreatment of um, uh, Aboriginal youths and families. Uh, in Alberta's submission, the Vanderpeet test is the appropriate test to establish an Aboriginal right, including the Aboriginal right to self-government, as this court has previously said. And the evidence that um, uh, would be in support of a right of self-government based on the Vanderpeet test should be specific to the uh, distinctive culture of the uh, claimant uh, for the uh, right of self-government. Do we really have to hear from the Cree and the Ash uh, Nishkanabi? about the importance of children. I mean, I understand that in the Vanderpeek context, there is a, a tie to a particular piece of land or a right that's being exercised over a particular piece of land, like fishing, and that relate more to practices or customs. But even if we take the heart of Vanderpeek, isn't, I, I don't understand this argument that it cannot cover a different kind of right. Canada says there are different kinds of rights and that we can be flexible and adaptable in terms of, uh, of the Vanderpeet test. So why is this offside Vanderpeet? Why is this offside Delgamu? Well, because the Vanderpeet test would require that the uh, right be asserted in, um, in a specific um, way and not in an excessive uh, general way. And Section 18, um, and the right is asserted or affirmed in Section 18, uh, asserts a right in a very general way. Um, well, what, the, uh, what, isn't it a specific way to assert the right to govern how we deal with child welfare? how we deal with child welfare and families in a specific community in a way that um, uh, con provides continuity for a distinctive culture. Um, if I, I understand I'm just having your... trouble understanding why that, is, why that isn't a specific right that's being claimed. Um, the, as, as I understand your question, um, Justice, it is about uh, the affirmation in Section 18, and the affirmation in Section 18 in Alberta's submission asserts a general and generic right to self-government. Um, Alberta would say that uh, the Vanderpeet test and the purpose of the Vanderpeet test is to protect indige indigeneity and indigenous difference. And that's why the uh, right must be asserted at a specific and not overly general level and the evidence brought forth by the claimant for that right should support um, uh, that claim and should focus on why, why the claimed right to self-government 
is an important part of the indigeneity of the claimant and the indigenous difference. It's a generic right, or I mean, I don't find that that's very helpful to think about it as general specific, but isn't it specific to self-government in relation to child and family services? Isn't that specific? It, Section that 18 is, in the context of this act, it's very specific. Well, it's specific to that subject matter, but the act itself um, uh, contains very little boundaries on what would be included in that right. It talks about um, uh, uh, indigenous laws being in relation to child and family services, which with respect is not helpful on establishing boundaries to this right. Alberta would say that when uh, or if the court moves away from the requirement of specificity in establishing Aboriginal rights, then problems of sovereign compatibility and the scope of the right become apparent. And uh, Alberta would submit that that's why this court uh, is perhaps grappling with the questions as to what are the boundaries of this affirmed oh, right. Um, uh, the uh, obviousness test is referred to by British Columbia in their submissions with respect is not helpful. It doesn't help in establishing where are the boundaries of this right that is affirmed in Section 18. And that's why Alberta says, as has been previously confirmed by this court, that uh, as with other Aboriginal rights, the right of self-government should be based on the test in Vanderpeet and must not be asserted at an overly uh, general level. Mr. Parker, can I ask you, a, a, in respect of a slightly different point asserted at paragraphs or at 35 and 36 of your factum relating to your objections to sections 18, 20, sub 2, 20, sub 3, and 21, 1. And I might have expected you to say, well, those are, in setting up a mechanism, that's potentially a valid exercise of 9124 jurisdiction, but you take exception to it. You say these are, this is a mistaken and wrongful extension of the 9124 power. And I'd like you to explain that, please. Thank you, Justice. Uh, the, uh, the source of this legislative authority is very clear in Alberta's submission. It is the inherent right that is affirmed in Section 18. It's, um, we agree with Quebec that uh, the source is not a delegated right, um, and uh, as such, um, the, the uh, sections that follow Section 18, Section 20 sub 2, 20 sub 3, and 21 1, are inextricably tied to the source of legislative authority. Indeed, this is why we say these sections are also unconstitutional. 20 sub 2 and 20 sub 3, we call the triggering provisions. The Court of Appeal said they were the keystone of the system set up by the Act because they give the, in, the Indigenous governing bodies who have enacted legislation using the, the affirmed legislative authority in Section 18, um, uh, the uh, application of the uh, conflict of laws provision and the force of federal law. But if you look at 20 sub 2, the legislative authority that is affirmed in section 18 is carried through into section 20 sub 2. This section deals with a very important issue of coordination agreements, coordinating the provision of child and family services between the indigenous uh, group that has passed a law with the provincial and federal governments. 
Um, but it's clear when you look at the language in 20 sub 2 that it's talking about an agreement. It's defined as being in relation to the legislative authority. And again, that legislative authority is the same legislative authority referred to in section 18. That's the source of the law, the affirmed right. And so while um, it might have been possible for Parliament to use its 9124 power to delegate to Indigenous governing bodies the ability to make laws, um, uh, that's not what this Act has done. And so that's why Alberta agrees with both Quebec and Canada in their submissions yesterday that Section 18, if that section is uh, unconstitutional, then the mechanisms that follow in these sections must also fall. Mr. Parker, uh, Justice Cote has the last question for you. So, Mr. Parker, you said that uh, it's clear it's not a delegation. I understand your point, but do you think it is open to a court to do an exercise of statutory interpretation and to arrive at a different conclusion than what looks prima facie, what has been said in the Act, and to do the exercise of statutory interpretation in order to fully grasp uh, what was really intended? Is it possible for a court to do that or not? Uh, certainly, uh, Justice Cote, the court should do that. But in Alberta's submission, once the court goes through that analysis, it will come to the conclusion, as asserted by the Attorney General of Quebec and of Alberta, that this clearly with respect, is not a delegated authority. Um, and again, the scheme and structure of these parts of the Act in sections 18, 20 sub 2, 20 sub 3, 21 sub 1, um, show that those, uh, those provisions are inextricably tied back to the source of the legislative authority. And that is the inherent right. Um, uh, so the analysis should be done, but with respect, uh, Alberta says that there is only one conclusion that would come from that analysis, and that is that this is not a, uh, uh, an exercise of delegation under 9124. All right. Thank you, Mr. Parker. Thank you. Uh, Tricia Paradis. Thank you, sir. Uh, let me begin by saying that the Northwest Territories is supportive of the inherent right to self-government and we also support enabling Indigenous groups to create and operate child and family services. And moving in to the question that was asked by Justice Cote yesterday with respect to the paramountcy provisions and the impact if they were removed from the legislation, the Northwest Territories perspective here is that sections 21 and 22.3 are not required for the successful transition of child and family services to Indigenous groups. The Act can continue without it and will actually function well without it because absent 21 and 22 sub 3, the parties will then have the ability to negotiate conflict of laws provisions within coordination agreements and this would also allow the provincial and territorial governments to actively plan with Indigenous groups on how the multitude of systems will work concurrently and cooperatively. And in that vein, our submissions are solely focused on the mechanism that was used by the federal government to confer paramountcy. And in our view, it may have resulted in an implied amendment to our Northwest Territories Act. And we've been asking ourselves the question throughout this process that what does having the force of law as federal law mean in this context? And it could mean that Indigenous laws apply across Canada or that they have been incorporated by reference. And it could also mean that Indigenous laws are federal enactments. And it's this last point that they may be federal enactments that gives the Northwest Territories pause because if they are federal enactments or could be seen that way, 
that's where it may have resulted in an implied or collateral amendment to our legislative authority. And that leads into our concern raised in our factum as it relates to Section 18 of the Federal Act. From our point of view, Section 18 can be broken down into two components. First, we see the declaration of the inherent right to self-government. And as we said earlier, we're supportive of that. And we also agree that it should include the right to jurisdiction over child and family service, or that it already does. It's the second part of Section 18 where we're identifying a disconnect. And that's specifically how the jurisdiction in relation to child and family services is framed. And it says, quote, jurisdiction in relation to child and family services includes legislative authority in relation to those services and authority to administer and enforce laws made under that legislative authority. The provision does not clearly bundle the right to legislate with the responsibility of operating and administrating child and family services. Instead, the phrasing of Section 18 suggests that an indigenous group, indigenous group can do one of two things. They can legislate or they can legislate the administration of their own child and family services. And this unbundling becomes untenable through the operation of Section 21, which elevates Indigenous laws from the independent jurisdiction they already have to having the force of federal law. And specifically, where an Indigenous group does not offer their own services, but instead exercises their legislative authority by placing positive obligations on the GNWT. And it's through this interaction between Section 18 and 21 of the Federal Act that creates an avenue where Indigenous laws could be enacted that purport to amend the, the Northwest Territories Child and Family Services Act, and then also to direct the, the government in the delivery of those services. And this is a concern because unlike the provinces, the Northwest Territories lawmaking jurisdiction is not exclusive. The federal government retains the power to make amendments to our legislative authority through the Northwest Territories Act. But is that, so, does that speak to validity or does that speak to what I would call a political problem between the two governments? And if the federal legislation sideswipes the Northwest Territories government because it is a territory and not a province, I would suggest your premier should talk to somebody in Ottawa and get it fixed. Well, sir, I would say it would uh, not be so much a political uh, issue as it is a legal issue because we have Section 61 in the, in the Northwest Territories Act, which is the form and manner requirement that requires the federal government to consult with the Northwest Territories through a specific process before it makes any kind of amendments to our act. That's not necessarily a political discussion. That is a, a form and manner requirement that the government is required to, to go to partake in. Um, and, and in terms of effects that have, have gone on to, to impact or, or potential impacts that we see um, that are strictly in the legal atmosphere is that in our book of authorities, we've provided as an example, um, the Inuvialuit Katoon Ron Reed and Inuvialuit Maliak Sack, which is the Inuvialuit law. And we show this um, as an example um, because throughout the Inuvialuit law, we see a multitude of provisions that purport to direct the GNWT. And nearly every part of this law imposes an obligation on how the GNWT will operate child and family services as opposed to focusing on how their own services will be administered. And we also see an example of Section 36 of their new Alouette Law, <clears throat> which requires the Director of Child and Family Services or the court to add a new <clears throat> as a party to every child protection proceeding. 
So we, we put this forward not only to demonstrate because not only is this contrary to the Child and Family Services Act, but it purports to change the rules by which the court operates. And this goes beyond a conflict of laws because it's an effort to legislate under a different head of power. We have Section 18K, which is the Northwest Territories Act, or under the Northwest Territories Act, where we derive the power to administrate over justice. And then 18J is where we derive the power to administrate over child and family services. And that provision is clearly outside of the scope of child and family services. But the problem is that it's part of a law that currently has the force of federal law. So it keeps leading us back to this question of what does it having the force of law as federal law mean in this context? In continuing along with that example, the Northwest Territories does not have exclusive lawmaking jurisdiction. This is a process that we've been engaged in to devolve powers to the Northwest Territories over decades. Um, so instead we have delegated powers. So if there is a federal law that provides for CFS, and there's no clear conflict with the Northwest Territories law, but our legislation is also silent on it, then it means a federal law can then build onto it and impose positive obligations onto, onto the Northwest Territories. And this is why Section 21 is a concern for the Northwest Territories, because if the court accepts the interpretation that Indigenous laws prevail, or Indigenous laws are, are federal enactments, it places us in a position where if there is then if our laws overlap with indigenous laws even when there's not a conflict with northwest territories laws those those federal enactments may prevail over the northwest territories and we have to look then at like where the where the legal impacts um of that uh, of that may result to um and there's nuances that would place the gnwt in a very untenable position so recognizing that the act itself aims for indigenous children to receive better services through their indigenous groups um if this if it, if it's interpreted to be a federal enactment this would then place the provincial and territorial government in a position of having to offer some services to a group of Indigenous children, but then not offering those same services to another group of Indigenous children, and that can't happen. And then we're also in a position of permitting Indigenous laws to direct another government. And in that context, it relinquishes the control the GNWT has over its public service. And we recognize that a similar argument was presented by Quebec, but that was in relation to the pith and substance of the Federal Act itself. Whereas the Northwest Territories is directing the court's attention to the view that's being taken by an Indigenous group that their authority under the Federal Act extends to directing the GNWT, not only in administering services, but in the spending of the public purse as well. And in our submission, if this is left unaddressed, it will inevitably lead to ongoing litigation between the Northwest Territories and Indigenous groups. And in our submission, this is but not we, where we have, we have been assured by counsel for the Department of Justice that the Government of Canada is proceeding in the utmost good faith in, uh, in a process of cooperative federalism. So I would, I, would, I, would, uh, I would take heart in that and have confidence that all will be well. Thank you, Mr. Ju Mr. Justice Rowe. And although we appreciate those sentiments, that's the interpretation of um, the Government of Canada in, in, their, uh, in this federal legislation. And they're only one party of three when it comes to coordination, uh, coordination agreements and negotiating these. So when it's removed for the ability to, for Canada to 
for, for when conflict of laws are, addressed, are predetermined through the federal act, it creates an issue of how do we then address conflict of laws within a coordination agreement when we have this overarching legislation that says this is the way it needs to be. So from the Northwest Territories uh, perspective, we need to highlight this for the court um, to, to take note of it because, um, because we are impacted differently by legislation. Um, and this is where our Section 61 of the Northwest Territories Act becomes relevant. Um, so before a federal parliament introduces a bill that amends the NWT Act, it must consult with the NWT Executive Council. And although the federal... Um, sorry, I think that I'm out of time and the rest of my submissions can be found in our, our factum, but I would emphasize that any collateral or implied amendment to our legislation needs to be explicit. Um, and thank right. you. Those are my submissions subject to any further questions that this, the court may have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Jaynes? Yes, my comments will be focused on trying to clarify how the legislation works. Um, the Attorney General of Canada is wrong to say that the whole legislation, especially sections 20 through 23, turn on the affirmation in section 18 being correct. <clears throat> to understand this, it is important to appreciate Canadian jurisprudence has recognized that Indigenous self-government powers exist independent of section 35, and I'll illustrate this with three examples. There is a very substantial body of federal court jurisprudence around the custom self-government process, which makes it clear that both Indian bands and their councils have inherent powers that arise not from the Indian Act as delegated powers, but from customary self-government. This extends even to the power to create adjudicative bodies such as election review bodies and appeal boards. Second, in Colony and Woolridge in 1867, dealing with a dispute that started before Confederation, it was recognized the continued existence and enforceability of Cree customary marriage law after the arrival of Europeans and the assertion of sovereignty. In Casimel, in the BC Court of Appeal, it's discussed how indigenous customary adoption laws continued and how these were recognized in British Columbia statutes and actually incorporated by reference and given a force of law as provincial law. None of these cases turned on Section 35, and in some cases are potentially not protected by Section 35, given their association with Indian bands. What Section 21 does is take qualifying laws of Indigenous governing bodies without reference to whether or not these laws are protected by Section 35, and give them force as federal law through referential incorporation. A court would still have to consider whether or not the law in question was a law within the meaning of Section 21 of the Act, but this would be guided not by the Vanderpeet test, but the, by the requirements of the legislation itself in Section 20 and in the definition sections, and possibly the types of considerations applied by the federal court in the governance cases to assess whether or not uh, something that's purported to be a law is in fact a law. The importance of Section 21.1 is that by incorporating the Indigenous law as federal law, the incorporated Indigenous law is made binding in the same way any federal law is and becomes entitled to the same deference that any federal law is when a conflict with a provincial law or the common law arises. Thus, Section 21.1 makes it clear that the incorporated Indigenous law is binding, has appropriate priority, and is justiciable as federal law and not just as indigenous law. Thus, the, the also actually matters. 
Section 22.3 merely reiterates, and it's the words for greater certainty are used, what is already the law, that in a conflict, federal law prevails over provincial law. This protection is entirely separate from any Section 35 protection. Invoking Section 35 would still require satisfying a different test, whatever it may be, and it would also provide different protection, potentially against federal interference as well as provincial interference. To underline, Sections 18, 21, and 22 do not purport to endow incorporated indigenous legislation or law with protection under Section 35. Similarly, nothing in the Act takes away any protection given by Section 35. And I just refer you to Section 2 of the Act, uh, which is expressed about this. Section 18 still serves an important purpose, however. First, it makes it clear that this legislation is not intended to create a system of delegated lawmaking power. This would be politically and morally unacceptable to many indigenous people and frankly would inhibit buy-in to this process. This is reinforced by Section 21.2 and Section 23.3, which limit or actually prohibit the use of federal law to interpret or limit the, uh, the indigenous law. Um, Ultimately, and second, it, it, the, the Section 18 reinforces the structure of the Act as legislation that enables the exercise of inherent powers rather than uh, displacing them. Ultimately, this Act creates a non-litigious approach to recognizing Indigenous self-government and effectively implementing it in the context of the Canadian constitutional structure. It is an approach that is built on cooperation and respect and better serves the goal of reconciliation. Ultimately, it is an adaption of the principles of cooperative federalism in an area of federal jurisdiction to recognize that indigenous governments, and I would say these are the first level of government on this continent, not the third, um, that have been marginalized for too long in our legal framework. Thank you. Thank you very much. Marie-Claude André Grégoire. Bonjour, Monsieur et Madame le juge. Donc, les prétentions des Inuits d'Ouachat Makmaluténam aujourd'hui, c'est qu'ils ont des droits constitutionnels préexistants à l'autodétermination qui comprend l'autonomie gouvernementale pour le bien-être des enfants et des familles, mais qui comprend également tout droit à la gouvernance communautaire. On peut penser à l'éducation, à la langue, donc tout ce qui revient à l'organisation sociale autonome. Enlever ce droit à l'autodétermination des, des peuples autochtones viendrait contredire essentiellement la définition de peuple dans l'article 35 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. En l'espèce, le droit constitutionnel préexistant à l'autonomie gouvernementale pour le bien-être des enfants et des familles est au cœur de la dignité humaine des peuples autochtones. Donc, notre prétention est que lorsque ce droit est exercé, ce droit a préséance sur les lois fédérales et provinciales. Et c'est dans ce sens-là que l'article 21 et 22.3 est virèse. C'est donc que c'est un droit constitutionnel et donc il est prépondérant, et non parce que c'est une loi qui est dite fédérale. En ce qui concerne les autres euh, articles de la loi fédérale, nos prétentions, c'est que Certains de ces articles-là sont inopérants dans le sens que s'ils rentrent 
et qu'ils deviennent incompatibles avec la loi ou les mesures autochtones. Donc, notre prétention, c'est que dans la mesure où les communautés autochtones exercent leurs droits, et c'est vraiment à ce niveau-là, donc lorsqu'ils exercent leurs droits à l'autonomie gouvernementale, et que l'exercice de ce droit-là devient incompatible avec, par exemple, la définition de l'intérêt de l'enfant ou certaines euh, dispositions qui ont été définies dans la loi fédérale ou dans le code des lois provinciales lorsqu'ils définissent des mesures ou comment on doit euh, appliquer, dans le fond, la, la protection de l'enfant. C'est dans ce cas-là qu'on indique que ces lois sont incompatibles parce que la préséance doit être donnée aux lois et mesures des communautés autochtones. Donc, Maître Grégoire, ou Maître André Grégoire, pour euh, oui. bien comprendre votre prétention, est-ce que c'est votre prétention que les articles 10 à 15 de la loi ne s'appliqueraient pas à un groupe qui décide de, de décider lui-même, par exemple, que signifie le meilleur intérêt de l'enfant? Effectivement. Donc, ces articles-là ne s'appliquent pas dans la mesure où, justement, c'est au peuple autochtone, en vertu de leur droit à l'autodétermination, de définir quel est l'intérêt de l'enfant pour justement préserver la culture, l'identité, ce qui est essentiel à euh, la, la transmission des cultures et traditions, coutumes des peuples autochtones. Donc, c'est nos prétentions. J'aimerais juste savoir, Maître, quel est votre euh, argument au sujet de l'application de Vanderpeet? En fait, concernant euh, l'application de Van Der Peet, je veux juste indiquer d'abord qu'on parlait initialement de droit activité. Mais dans la mesure où Van Der Peet s'appliquerait, parce qu'on s'entend que, justement, ce que je disais tantôt, c'est que la protection du bien-être des enfants est au cœur de la dignité humaine. Donc, c'est clair que toutes les communautés autochtones euh, ont ce droit-là qui constitue une coutume pratique et tradition d'une société distinctive. Donc, les critères sont remplis haut la main par les communautés autochtones. Alors, et dans que, le cas que dit, où... Que, que dites-vous euh, au paragraphe 69 de Van de Piet, où c'est écrit « Les droits ancestraux n'ont pas un caractère général et universel. Leur portée et leur contenu doivent être déterminés au cas par cas. Le, fa le fait d'un groupe... Autochtone possède le droit ancestral de faire une chose donnée ne permet pas à lui seul d'établir qu'une autre collectivité autochtone a le même droit. Alors, que dites-vous au, au, au sujet du paragraphe 69 de Van der Piet? Oui, en fait, bien, je vous réfère au paragraphe 74 de Van der Piet qui dit que, dans le fond, les droits ancestraux découlent non seulement de l'occupation antérieure du territoire, mais aussi de l'organisation sociale antérieures et des coutumes, des cultures distinctives des peuples autochtones habitant ce territoire. Donc, il s'agit d'une organisation sociale, les peuples autochtones, et l'essence même d'une organisation sociale n'est pas justement la protection et le bien-être des enfants. Je pense que oui. Oui. Vous... Alors, euh, alors, le juge Kerkapsanis, ju le juge Kazirère, deux dernières questions. Oui. Vous avez dit qu'une loi euh, autochtone peut rejeter le concept de le meilleur intérêt de, de l'enfant. Mais est-ce que vous êtes d'accord que la validité d'une telle loi doit être euh, déterminée sous le, le, sous le régime de Sparrow? Mais 
Effectivement, dans le sens que si euh, une communauté autochtone euh, répond que euh, dans leur intérêt de l'enfant, on parle euh, d'un acte criminel ou d'un acte qui est vraiment répréhensible, dans ce cas-là, moi, je crois que ça va être l'honneur de la couronne. Mais ici, il est question vraiment d'avoir accès à la justice. Et je vous réfère au paragraphe 1 euh, de l'arrêt euh, Terre-Neuve et Labrador contre les Ouachonois, donc les Inuits douachat macmalotinam où il est question ici de l'obligation, euh, si on oblige les Premières Nations à prouver qu'il est au, au cœur même de leur dignité, soit leur, le droit à l'autodétermination sur le bien-être ici en l'espèce des, des familles et des enfants, c'est donc de leur enlever, en fait, toute l'essence même de l'accès à la justice et de la réconciliation, l'objectif même de l'article 35. Très bien. Dernière question, M. le juge Casiret. Merci, M. le juge en chef. Maître André Grégoire, vous êtes très sévère à l'endroit de la loi sur la protection du, euh, de la jeunesse du Québec au paragraphe 26 et 27 oui. de votre mémoire. Et j'aimerais comprendre pourquoi vous trouvez que la... La LPJ est constitutionnellement inopérante dans la mesure où elle, aff elle affirme dans son, dans son préambule que les Autochtones sont les mieux placés pour répondre aux besoins de leurs enfants de la manière la plus appropriée et en mettant sur place des dispositions particulières aux Autochtones, il y a un mécanisme qui n'est pas identique au mécanisme fédéral, mais pour... Euh, euh, je suis à 131.20 et, su, euh, et suivant pour la, la gestion des ententes en matière autochtone et la gestion de, de la question de la protection de la jeunesse. Est-ce qu'il n'y a pas là une possibilité de voir une forme, malgré tout, de coopération dans ce domaine où il y a peut-être un, un double aspect oui, alors je vous réfère en fait à la commission parents et euh, qui a donné suite à ces modifications législatives-là parce qu'initialement, ils n'y étaient pas. Et c'était l'article 37.5 de la LPJ qui permettait euh, de procéder ainsi par une entente de délégation de pouvoir. Et le mot délégation ici est, est bien à, à souligner. Euh, en fait, c est, c est, ces articles-là ne, ne sont pas adéquat pour les peuples autochtones. D'abord, rappelons que pour la 37.5, il y a seulement une communauté autochtone qui a réussi à négocier après des dizaines et des dizaines d'années avec le gouvernement du Québec, d'avoir une entente sur 37.5. Après, les nouvelles dispositions du gouvernement du Québec, d'abord, ne respectent pas le droit constitutionnel à l'autodétermination des peuples autochtones de s'occuper de leurs enfants. Et il s'agit encore d'une d'une tentative de, de, de prévoir un, un système qui n'est pas le leur. Les Premières Nations n'ont pas besoin de judiciariser constamment euh, leur, euh, leur, la, à chaque fois qu'il y a un enjeu avec les enfants. Au contraire, ils ont un, leur propre système de gouvernance lorsqu'on parle, par exemple, de l'adoption coutumière, euh, lorsqu'on parle, par exemple, de, de, de garder un enfant pendant un certain temps et euh, de ne pas de permettre aux parents, parce qu'ici on parle beaucoup des enfants, mais les enfants ne sont, sont rien s'ils n'ont pas un entourage, s'ils n'ont pas des parents, soit adoptifs ou des... Un, 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 on dit souvent que ça prend une communauté, et c'est la communauté des, communo des communautés autochtones qui élèvent les enfants. Donc, toute cette considération-là n'est pas prise en compte dans les nouvelles modifications législatives du Québec. D'accord. Merci beaucoup.
Mr. Maitre. Yeah, Mike, Michael Seed. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. Um, first, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the beautiful uh, Treaty 6 territory on behalf of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. The FSIN has for decades represented the unified voice of 74 First Nations in the province, and never has this voice been more unified than to protect the right of First Nations to raise and protect their children in accordance with their uh, diverse cultures and traditions. FSIN's advocacy indeed included supporting efforts to operationalize this vital right through vehicles like the Act. And the vitality of this right is really that it lies at the very heart of First Nations existence as distinct peoples in this country. And I, wanna, I, I would like to draw on a quote by Elder Rose Adamayu that really captures both the gravity and the intimacy of the questions being asked here today. She states, the bringing up of a child can be likened to braiding a willow. It will grow as you braid it, and so it is with a child. What he has taught and what is done with him as a child is how he will grow up, just like the braided willow. To call this a quote is actually a disservice because it's a teaching that each motion and each act directed at a child's development leads to the constitutive whole. So this case is really about who under what authority is entitled and best suited to lay the pattern of development for Indigenous children to become healthy adults, knowledgeable and proud of who they are. So we wish to make two points of emphasis here today. And the first relates to a view that animates the humanitarian crisis of the historic and ongoing dislocation of First Nations children and families from their communities and cultures. Elder Rose is from Little Pine First Nation and this is situated just a short distance from the Battleford Indian Industrial School. This was the first Indian residential school opened by the Government of Canada in 1883. And it wasn't until a century after it opened that 72 little bodies overgrown and left to be forgotten were found in unmarked graves. This site is now a place to honor children separated from their families and communities. And it illustrates the real human costs of depriving First Nations from the right to care for their own children. A cost that has been replicated and perpetuated through the continued intrusion of provincial and federal welfare regimes into First Nations families and communities. This is a condition really that denies First Nations cultures dignity and respect because it is rooted in this insidious view that First Nations people cannot, should not, or do not have the sufficiently sophisticated normative orders to exercise jurisdiction over their community's most sacred blessings. We must eradicate this view that First Nations people cannot take care of their own children. We must stop telling First Nations that they can't exercise this right until they expend enormous financial resources and time to prove it in court or to a government. Negotiations do not occur in a vacuum. Provincial and federal governments hold the power to refuse to engage or step away if there's nothing for an indigenous peoples to assert. A piecemeal and time-consuming approach is not the solution to an immediate systemic crisis. The second wish, uh, point we wish to make is that the right to self-government in the sector of child and family services is foundational, immutable, and indisputable. 
It is not like a specific right to fish, a right to log, or a right to hunt. It is the right from which all such specific rights find their continuity. It's the right from which all others flow. It's not a matter of how did or do First Nations hunt. It is the very basis upon which we're even able to answer those questions in the first place. Now, the Court of Appeal of Quebec has identified this right as generic, but the point is, the distinction is, it is so intimately bound to the very existence of a people that requiring case-by-case case specific proof of it is to a look at an Indigenous group and, how they, and ask them, how might you even exist before me? The raising and protection of children is the basis of how and why integral practices live generation to generation. Thank you very much. Mr. Stevenson. Good morning, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. I'm calling in from Treaty 1 territory. As we all know, reconciliation is a primary goal of Section 35. There are principles of reconciliation that this honorable court has pronounced in the past. These principles have not been enunciated in any consolidated form to date, but which have only been vaguely referenced by other parties to the appeals in question. It is submitted that reconciliation should be elevated as a constitutional principle to assist in the determination of legal matters related to Section 35 issues. In order to be elevated to a constitutional principle, the living tree doctrine must be employed in order to accommodate the principles of reconciliation and the flexible interpretation of the Constitution. At the same time, constitutional interpretation allows for unwritten principles to apply on all legal issues and questions. We, say, we state that reconciliation is a constitutional principle and in a unanimous decision, this court held that it has the authority to define constitutional principles and quote, embraces unwritten as well as unwritten, close quote, rules, unwritten rules, close quote. By virtue of these pronouncements, the case at bar presents an opportunity for the continued evolution of section 35 and the generic right to self-government as it pertains to child and family well-being as acknowledged in the Federal Act with the assistance of the principles of reconciliation. I just ask the court to refer to uh, the reference resuscession of Quebec, uh, especially at paragraph 52, which is at tab five of our condensed book. We've laid out seven uh, non-exhaustive lists of principles of reconciliation at paragraph four of our condensed book. I ask the court to review those. The Federal Act is binding on both crowns and acknowledges the pre-existing inherent right of First Nations jurisdiction over child and family services. Section 35 recognizes and affirms existing rights of First Nations, including the right to self-government. And First Nation right to self-government on the well-being of our children and families has never been extinguished. While acknowledging that First Nations jurisdiction over child and family services does not offend nor alter the Constitution, the manner in which our legislation, the PEGWAS Act, honoring our children, families, and nation act is written, is meant to serve as a bridge for PEGWAS CFS to work in collaboration and coordination with PEGWAS families to assist in their journey to wellness. The federal act properly recognizes the ability for First Nations to provide culturally appropriate services to their children and families, and it's about the well-being of our children in response to the current humanitarian crisis that our friend, um, Mr. Seed spoke about eloquently just, just prior to me. We submit that this is an enhancement of services, not a trenching upon provincial powers. 
Section 35 has recognized and affirmed the jurisdiction and scope of the Pegasus Act in concert with the Federal Act. With respect to the Vanderbeek test, it's as enunciated, it states, in order to be an Aboriginal right, an activity must be an element of a practice, custom, or tradition to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group claiming the right. Uh, our submission is that the Vanderbeek uh, dealt with an impudent activity, which was salmon fishing. This is an individual activity that is held by the collective as a right. In this matter, we are dealing with a right to self-government as it relates to child and family well-being. This is a collective right held and practiced by the collective. To apply a test from an individually practiced right to that of a collectively practiced right creates a distortion in the Section 35 analysis that is required. Rather, we suggest applying the principles of reconciliation in the process under question under question is more appropriate in the circumstances. Uh, a question yesterday dealt with, you know, what's the difference between uh, self-government and hunting right, for example? Well, the, our response would be that when we're dealing with self-governance, we're dealing with internal government matters and affairs, as well as the continued existence of First Nations as a society, uh, that those aspects aren't dealt with on an individual uh, activity basis. And as well, I, I acknowledge that uh, Child and Family Services goes to the heart of the culture, which was uh, stated yesterday by Madam Justice Cote. It is submitted that the Pegasus Act and other similar First Nations child welfare laws are integral to First Nations cultures and values being applied in child, child and family well-being. And it, we, we submit that the court's analysis based on a principles of reconciliation is encouraged, thereby it would confirm the validity of the Federal Act. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. La Cour va prendre la pause du matin. 15 minutes. Sarah Nyman. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices Anin. Apitindagaziweg Anishinaabekwe. Indigenous women are so valued and so highly important. Co-counsel Kira Poirier and I submit these arguments on behalf of the Native Women's Association of Canada. NWAC intervenes today to encourage this court to consider the equality promises that live in Section 35.4 of the Constitution Act 1982. That section holds that 
Section 35 rights are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. NWAC submits that it is important that this court's guidance on Aboriginal governance rights view this promise through the court's previous guidance on substantive equality, so it's not to perpetuate further gender-based disempowerment. This approach aligns with this court's long-standing jurisprudence on gender equality law and international human rights law and indigenous rights law as it develops in this era of reconciliation. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples at both Articles 22 and 44 require Canada take steps to safeguard Indigenous women's equality rights. As this court has heard in these appeals so far, UNDRIP is not just an aspiration, but a binding framework to use when interpreting Indigenous rights. NWAC recommends that this court include gender-inclusive language in its guidance, specifically invoking these constitutional equality guarantees. Now, this court may wonder why this is a valid consideration in these analyses. It is vital that substantive equality principles are included in Indigenous rights governance frameworks, because otherwise, facially neutral guidance will serve to perpetuate the harms Indigenous women experience. And the harms that I'm speaking of are those that are described within the findings of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. A decolonizing approach to Indigenous rights can actually redress Indigenous women's oppression and discrimination within Indigenous governance structures. And that's because when women have equal access to their governance rights, they are empowered to enact meaningful and lasting changes, creating healthier communities. In other words, if we all go on assuming that Indigenous women have equal access to their Section 35 rights, Indigenous women's disempowerment will persist. Reconciliation and strong Indigenous self-governance rights are two principles at the heart of this appeals. The act this court must interpret in these appeals, in fact, emphasizes substantive equality for Indigenous women and overcoming historical disadvantage, and it relies on reconciliation principles to ground these rights. As this court emphasized, constitutional principles must be consistent with charter values, and this includes substantive equality. This court's decision will directly impact how Indigenous women engage their Section 35 protected rights. This court has produced decades of jurisprudence on Section 35 and equality rights, but Section 35.4, which marries the two in advancing Indigenous women's equality rights, has received very little attention. NWAC therefore sees this as an important opportunity for the court to clearly ensure the coherence of laws regarding gender equality and Aboriginal rights for the benefits of the parties in these appeals, but also for the lower courts and tribunals awaiting your guidance. I will draw this court's attention to NWAC's condensed book at tab 10, page 24, where you'll see that UNDRIP Article 22 requires Canada take measures to ensure Indigenous women enjoy the full protection and guarantees against all forms of violence and discrimination. Our courts are tasked with serving as guardians to constitutional rights. So you're, it is crucial you're kind to shine of, a light. You're, you're kind of presupposing or, or telegraphing a, you know, an issue that we're going to have to deal with in the Dixon matter in February. Right? Your submissions kind of presuppose that the charter applies um, in self-governing uh, First Nations and and without knowing what the terms of the final settlement agreement might be. I mean, these are sort of sweeping propositions that um, I'm not sure we can respectfully um, 
adopt without knowing what the specific terms of, of the self-governing governing arrangements are? Uh, thank you for your question, Justice Brown, or, or your comment. I would submit that where Section 35 rights are central to the questions raised in these appeals, uh, Section 35 plur plays an active role. And where it does, that's where NWAC encourages uh, the charter values and the principles of substantive equality to apply. And the reason for that is because if a facially neutral or a formal equality uh, approach applies to Section 35.4, uh, then no further work needs to be done. And as we can see from uh, the history of Indigenous women's experiences uh, with Indigenous self-governance rights, but also with their Section 35 rights, um, their access to their rights is diminished. Uh, and so with the final moments of my submissions available to me, I will just say that NWAC asks this court uh, to provide guidance that advances Indigenous women's equal access to their rights in this area of law. So as we can achieve a way that builds cohesion between Section 35, Indigenous self-governance rights, international human rights norms, and constitutional rights. Barring any further questions. Thank you very much. Those are my submissions. Thank Chief Justice and Justices, my submissions today will speak to two issues. And the first is Parliament's jurisdiction under Section 9124 to afford Indigenous laws with the status of federal law, as it's done in Section 21. And the second is the applicability of Sparrow to a unique situation where a law has concurrent statutory and constitutional protections under both 9124 and Section 35. With respect to paramountcy, I propose to address only the validity of Section 21, and my argument in that regard is one of precedent. This speaks to a question from Justice Cote yesterday regarding similarities to Section 88 of the Indian Act. And I'll just note that in response to that question, the Attorney General of Quebec cited Morris to explain why Indiana cases are not relevant. With respect, here we're talking about Parliament's jurisdiction under 9124 to afford Indigenous laws the status of federal law, whereas Morris was talking about the application of provincial laws to treaty rights. Morris doesn't speak to the issue of sections 9124 and the, uh, the ability of, to afford Indigenous laws the status of federal law. Section 88 deals not only with conflicts between provincial laws and treaty rights, it also deals with conflicts between provincial laws and Indigenous laws made under the Indian Act, specifically sections 81 of the bylaws. In Section 88 cases, courts, including this court, have consistently recognized that as a result of Section 88, Indigenous laws have the force of federal law and are paramount to conflicting provincial laws. And there are do, examples of these cases do you set out do, at foot. Is, does, that, does your submission account for um, the case of Dick and the Queen? It does not. Okay, because Dick, Dick and the Queen makes it pretty clear that Section 88 only concerns law that go to the, the so-called essence of Indianness not to all laws. I would submit that there are uh, a long line of cases, including from this court, that have recognized that there is sort of broad um, protection for these indigenous laws. Um, and that, that Section 88, and I'm not saying that Section 88 is an exact match, but I think that it does provide a precedent for the validity of Section 21. So this idea that there, that federal government has jurisdiction under 9124 to afford Indigenous laws the status of federal law. And I would submit that the source of the legislative authority is not relevant with respect to this question of jurisdiction. So the fact that in this case, Section 35 provides that legislative authority doesn't alter this jurisdictional question. So for example... I mean, maybe, maybe, the, the, maybe the answer is this, this goes to the 
to the to the essence of it anyways and but, it, but I, it very but well I, might, but yes. I, I just think your I just think your description of section 88's effect may may go too far and it may and 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 it's it's meant to provide an um, a precedent that this this is not a foreign concept and that this exists that this is not the first time that this has happened um, apart from any uh, apart from any um, uh, analogy with section 88 and we can put that aside I, I think uh, the only constitutional proscription is legislative interdelegation, and this clearly isn't a legislative interdelegation to another uh, to another legislature. So the question then is: Is this a delegation, or is it a, an incorporation by reference, perhaps an anticipatory incorporation by reference? Which would you see this to be: an, an anticipatory incorporation by reference, or a delegation? I mean, between the two, I would certainly see it more as an anticipatory incorporation by reference. And I think the, the issue of delegation was discussed, and, and there was acknowledgement that this could have been done via delegation, and that Parliament specifically did not want to do that. And there are many, many very well justified reasons for that. Um, this furthers reconciliation. Can it be both? It could absolutely be both. I think that there would likely be some um, resistance to that from indigenous communities, but from a legal perspective, absolutely could be both. And, and this, this is, if you look at, for example, Section 81, if uh, Section 81 enumerates um, several issues that bylaws can be made on, and if those issues were to be found to actually be incorporated in a inherent right to self-government protected by Section 35, that wouldn't invalidate this Section 91-24 jurisdiction, that the two can exist concurrently, and and this is, this is now the situation in reverse. And this issue of concurrent statutory and constitutional protection was raised uh, in Obiter in Cote, and this was in the context of Section 88 and Section 35 treaty rights. And this, this is related to my second argument with respect to the applicability of Sparrow. And I submit that in, in Cote's obiter, the court discusses that Section 88 confers special statutory protection to, to Section 35 rights through paramountcy, and that those are broader or appear broader than that provided by Section 35 alone. And the court said it opined that once it had been demonstrated that a provincial law infringed a Section 35 treaty right, the treaty would arguably prevail without applying Sparrow. Now, all of the subsequent cases uh, that follow implying, uh, applying the Sparrow framework None of those cases involve a conflict between a provincial law and a Section 35 treaty right that also had the status of federal law. And none of those cases have invalidated this Cote reasoning regarding concurrent statutory and constitutional protection. And in my submission, this reasoning in Cote should apply here, where the statutory protections in Section 21 of the Act afford Section 35 Indigenous laws that are made in accordance with the Act with the status of federal law, and that provides stronger protections than would be provided under Section 35 alone as a result of this concurrent statutory and constitutional protection. And my final note will just be that the, the word also in Section 21, I think, is significant in that regard. It's conveying that concurrent statutory and constitutional protection. I think both could be used. One was chosen specifically in, in furtherance of reconciliation, but both are possible. And when it comes to the question of jurisdiction, it shouldn't change that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Paul Seaman. Tanji Kia Matin. Hello and good morning, Justices. My submission to you today relates to Section 18 of the Act and the supporting provisions that follow. Much attention was paid to this section yesterday in oral submissions and in questions from the bench. 
First, in the IBA's factum, it submits that a universal right of Indigenous self-government does exist. It maintains that position today. The IBA submits that, notwithstanding this universal breadth, the Act implements a very specific element of self-government under the 9124 Head of Power. Strictly speaking, it would be unnecessary for this Court to go further and to opine on every element of self-government that exists in this case. Here, the specific element of self-government that is directly before you today, which I would characterize as a basic human right to care for one's own children and families, is one that is essential for cultural survival. But I want to touch on the purposes of 9124. Yesterday, my friend Ms. Metallic, speaking for the intervener, the Caring Society, referenced this court's decision in a reference case from the 1930s called Rieskimo and the protective purposes associated with the 9124 power. The facts of that case, Rieskimo, are important. During the Great Depression, a humanitarian crisis emerged. Specifically, famine swept through northern Quebec and impacted the Inuit population. Quebec and Canada disagreed on who bore responsibility to provide relief to the Inuit. This court found that this fell under federal protective responsibility over Indians under 9124. And of course, nearly 80 years later in Daniels, this court would find the Métis to be included under 9124 and instructed that Section 35 and 9124 should be read together. My submission to you today is that if properly characterized, Section 18 of the Act and the sections that follow necessarily single out Indigenous peoples under the 9124 power, provide Indigenous peoples with a mechanism to express a form of Section 35 jurisdiction through lawmaking powers, and incorporate those laws by reference into federal law, and this of course triggers considerations of paramountcy. There were also submissions and questions regarding the extent to which Parliament could be constrained by the Vanderpeet test when affirming the existence of Indigenous rights in legislation. In the IBA's submission, Parliament is not and ought not be constrained by Vanderpeet. The Vanderpeet framework holds that an Indigenous rights claimant engaged in adversarial litigation must plead or characterize the right being claimed in a specific way. Government is then required to justify any infringement of that claimed right. The Vanderpeet framework does not speak to constraining Parliament's ability to make laws when looking to define Indigenous rights. This freedom is important in my submission when allowing Parliament to choose here in cooperation with Indigenous peoples themselves how to best address the humanitarian crisis that again is currently the gross overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the child welfare system and to do so in a way that we say aligns with the remedial purpose of Section 35 that's been clear since Sparrow. And my final submission to you today relates to Quebec's novel reliance on Section 35 in this case. Indigenous rights under Section 35 are rights held by Indigenous people against government. In that sense, it is a shield for Indigenous people against both levels of government and it has a similarly important remedial purpose. In this same sense, it is not open to the province of Quebec to wield Section 35 as a sword 
against the federal government and against Indigenous people with a view to carving out core and important elements of, this, of Parliament's Section 9124 power. This court most recently made this point clear at paragraph 142 of Silco Team that Section 35, quote, operates as a limit on federal and provincial legislative powers, and just like charter rights, these rights are held against government. Marcy, thank you, Justices. Subject to any questions you have, those are my submissions. Thank today. you very much. Thank you. Maggie Winty. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Chiefs of Ontario is going to uh, make its submissions primarily focused around some of the questions that we heard yesterday from the court, um, starting with the question of Section 18 of the Act. So it's Chiefs of Ontario's submission that primarily uh, Section 18 is correct in that it does provide space uh, for Indigenous laws to operate and that Section 35 does so, and that's those submissions are made in our factum. Um, and we've set that out uh, as to why self-government falls within the ambit of, of Section 35. And as you heard yesterday from my friend Ms. Metallic, the Constitution is the floor, not the ceiling. And Parliament has chosen to recognize Indigenous self-government in the area of children and families in cooperation with Indigenous nations. But in any event, you don't need Section 18 for, to, for the Act to work. What you need is Indigenous lawmaking power. And this court and the law generally has already recognized that Indigenous lawmaking power exists. It's already recognized under Canadian law, and my friend Mr. Jaynes pointed out some helpful analogies that exist, for instance, under the customary election law or customary marriage and adoption laws. And there we see that there's no need for Section 35 to operate in such a way that Indigenous lawmaking is subjected to a Vanderpee test before it is recognized. Customary election laws exist and are the effects of those laws, the effects of how they operate, i.e. the leadership selection, are recognized by the Indian Act, but they exist before the Indian Act comes into effect. They are allowed to continue to exist and the Indian Act just recognizes them. And we think that there's an analogy to be, to be said there, that this Act also recognizes the customary laws about children and families when it's, when it's um, allowing Indigenous lawmaking in this realm. And there's also support for this in the federal court jurisprudence about uh, customary election laws and that Indigenous legal traditions form part of the law of the land. And our friends at Makovic in paragraph 23 cite Pastion and Deneta, uh, which talk about how the customary law is something that pre-existed. And so it's clear that it's clear to us that the Indigenous lawmaking power exists sort of outside of Section 35. And then once the operation of the Act comes into play and the Indigenous law is passed, then there is the process for, for coordination agreements by which the law is recognized. And it isn't until the coordination agreement process, which we submit is, is crucial and important to address some of the questions the court had yesterday, it's not until that's completed that we then use the 9124 power to incorporate the Indigenous law as a matter of federal law. And so I want to draw the court's attention to the coordination agreement processes because there were some questions that were raised yesterday uh, by the Attorney General for Quebec, which talked about uh, the coordination agreement process basically being illusory. And in our submission, it's not illusory. Uh, the coordination agreement process does precisely what the courts have asked us to do in the past, and that is for Indigenous parties and governments to sit down and to negotiate about these kinds of matters. Quebec implied that that was something that we needed to be cautious about because the illusion was 
the illusory aspect was that there was a foregone conclusion that there would be paramountcy. And it's Ku's submission that the underlying premise of that submission from Quebec is that there needs to be caution paid with paramountcy coming into effect after a year. But that rests on an assumption that Indigenous peoples are going to exercise their jurisdiction recklessly. And that's not a premise that Ku submits that this court can accept. We are here because Parliament, in cooperation with Indigenous people, made a policy choice that Indigenous nations aren't going to exercise their jurisdiction uh, recklessly, but they are here and best suited to care for their children. And in fact, once you go through the operation of the coordination agreement process, and I'll draw your attention to those provisions, it's not illusory. It facilitates a negotiation that this court asked us to participate in, and there are powerful incentives contained in the coordination agreement process. There's an incentive on parties to reach agreement to make the Indigenous law work on the ground. On one side, we have the specter of the force of paramountcy, which incentivizes Crown parties to work to coordinate their laws with Indigenous laws. And on the other side, we have the promise of funding, which is, which is a key part of operationalizing the Indigenous laws. And so, and so it's our submission that the, the Act is set up in a way that promotes the kinds of negotiation and the kinds of cooperation that the courts have been telling us to do within the federal scheme for a long time. And to answer some of the questions that the Attorney General raised or that this court raised yesterday about, I heard Justice Rowe ask about a blank check, for instance. Um, if we're so worried about the operation of Indigenous laws and where those are, th those are going, it's important to remember that for better or for worse, there are guardrails under sections 10 to 17 and sections 23 of the Act. And those will necessarily uh, limit the Indigenous laws in operation to be in the best interest of children. So I see my time is up. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Catherine Ensel. Good morning, Waikakwaitep. My name is Catherine Hensel. I'm joined by my co-counsel, Christy Sang and Todd Orvitz in representing the Inuvialuit Regional Corporation. Like other Indigenous peoples in Canada, Inuvialuit are ill-served and unsafe when subjected to, to ter territorial statutory child welfare systems. As much now as they have been historically, you see that detailed and confirmed in the Auditor General's report from 2018, which is in our condensed book at tab two. And the Inuvialuit know this to be true. The Inuvialuit, as one of the four regions of Inuit, recognized by Inuit as sources of jurisdiction, alongside the people of Nunavut, Nunavut, Nunutsiavut, um, their territory is largely in the Northwest Territories. And as arising from that jurisdiction, in November of 2021, the Inuvialuit enacted Inuvialuit that is their law, an expression of their culture concerning child and family services and the protection and care of their children. To pick up on many of the submissions made before this court and comments and observations by members of the court, it is the point of Inuvialuit culture and existence as peoples to raise and protect children. It is not only the how, uh, or it is not only the how, how they are Inuvialuit, it is why they are a people. The failure to acknowledge and incorporate Inuvialuit culture and law is one of the reasons why the NWT's Child and Family Services Act, like those of other provinces and territories, has failed and continues to fail to protect Inuvialuit children and families and has the opposite effect often 
and is something, is an instrument through the CFSA that uh, Inuvialuit children, families, and people have to be protected from. And that is one of the core functions of Maliaxat, the Inuvialuit law. Its legislative scheme seeks to protect Inuvialuit children, youth, and families from the more pernicious and unsafe elements of the Child and Family Services Act in the Northwest Territories by ensuring that the Northwest Territories has appropriate resources and support from the Inuvialuit to uh, provide safe and effective services um, and to, by ensuring that Inuvialuit service providers are informed and participate in decision-making about Inuvialuit children. Also by applying Inuvialuit culturally based and informed standards and considerations for deci decisions about and care of Inuvialuit children. As long as the Northwest Territories remain involved in the care of and decisions concerning Inuvialuit children, but can ignore Maliaxat, it's a policy guideline. Maliaxat is not a law. And its purpose and the purpose of the Federal Act will each be confounded. Inuvialuit will not enjoy the protections of their own government and law. My friend, Ms. Paradis, has uh, made several observations with respect to the application and provisions of the Federal Act. I would note for the court's benefit that the Inuvialuit disagree that sections 21 and 22 confound uh, territories and provinces' ability to actively plan with Indigenous groups. Those sections support and require such coordination. What sections 21 and particularly section 22 do not support is the unilateral limiting of Indigenous authority and jurisdiction by provinces and territories and the lengthy, torturously long and resource-intensive negotiations that accompany treaty and self-government negotiations. Like all Indigenous peoples in Canada, Inu the Inuvialuit are experiencing and continue to experience today a humanitarian crisis. Section 22 in particular is an answer to that crisis by limiting the amount of time that Indigenous governing bodies, provinces and territories can take to negotiate coordinating, uh, coordination agreements and put them in place. Inuvialuit Regional Corporation submits that Canada has a heightened obligation to Indigenous peoples in the Northwest Territories to ensure that its statutory creature, the Northwest Territories, adequately serves and does not harm or does not continue to harm Inuvialuit and other Indigenous children and families. This is their statutory creature, Canada's statutory creature. The Federal Act goes a long way in the Inu Inuvialuit submission to permitting Canada to fill, fulfill its obligations to them in preventing further harm. Thank you very much. Kukshem. Alisa Flaherty-Spence. Chief Justice, Justices, Ulakut, Alisa Flaherty-Spence, Uyunga. Good morning, my name is Alyssa Flaherty-Spence. I'm appearing on behalf of three Inuit organizations, Inuit Teperit Kanatemi, the National Inuit Representative Organization for All Inuit in Canada, Nunatsiavu Government, a treaty-based Inuit government, and Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, which represents the treaty rights of Nunavut Inuit. Inuit Teperit Kanatemi is represented by our Inuit rights holders, Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, Nunatsiavu Government, 
as well as Inuvialuit Regional Corporation and Mekavik Corporation. Notably in 2018, Inuit Kenatemi also participated in the co-development of the legislation. Inuit have never surrendered their rights to self-government under Section 35 of the Constitution. This legislation simply provides a framework for legislative authority over child and family services. It does not require Indigenous governing bodies to exercise legislative authority over child and family services. Rather, it is opt-in legislation that simply facilitates the right to do so. Given the geographic areas involved for Inuit, Inuit have in particularly have suffered from the lack of basic opportunities and services across Inuit homeland, resulting in a steady movement to other provinces and territories to pursue educational and employment opportunities or in the response of other factors such as the lack of adequate housing, healthcare, and basic social services. But, but now, does not, does not Nunavut have all of the authority of a territorial government, which is very much akin, it's not equal to, very much akin to a provincial government, and does not Nunatsiavut, under its self-government agreement, have authority over uh, these matters already? Justice Rowe, you are correct in that Nunatsiavut does have their own self-government agreement, as mentioned yesterday. However, this legislation simply provides an additional tool to access um, jurisdiction or, or manage and facilitate with their neighboring provinces and territories uh, management over child and family services. It's an additional tool to what's already there. However, other regions across Inuit homeland, um, such as uh, Inuvialuit or, or Makuvik or, or Nunavik, sorry, do not have self-governing agreements, and this would provide a timely tool to have coordination with the province and territories over child and family services. So this, this relocation, this dislocation has resulted in the removal of a number of Inuit children to urban centers across southern Canada because of the lack of those basic services available across Inuit homeland. There is a need for those services to be available in Inuit homeland to ensure Inuit children stay connected to their families and culture. Keeping Inuit communities and families together is an integral to fostering Inuit language and culture. There is a need to transform the current child welfare system fundamentally so that Inuit have control over the implementation, design, and delivery of services for Inuit families and children. Current Nunavut legislation recognizes and facilitates Inuit customary laws and procedures, particularly in respect to customary adoption. Inuit have been practicing customary adoption historically, and it continues to be exercised today. Inuit are in the best position to be making decisions on what needs are required to protect in Inuit children and families while nurturing their their, their language and culture. Ultimately, eliminating dislocation of Inuit children <coughs> and families across southern Canada and improving the effectiveness of services 
provided to Inuit within their homelands preserves Inuit families and culture. The Act facilitates and affirms authority over Inuit to make decisions and cooperate with provinces and territories in the delivery of services uh, for Inuit. Inuit have already practiced this through their customs and traditions and has been codified um, through self-government agreements or treaties as seen in Nunavut legislation. Thank the Act will simply provide an additional tool, uh, potential funding and affirm what this right that has already existed. Thank you very much. Jason Cook. Good morning, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, I'm here on behalf of uh, Nunatuavit Community Council. Uh, the council represents uh, approximately 6,000 members, the Inuit of Nunatuavit. Uh, Nunatuavit means our ancient land and Nunatuavit includes more than 20 communities, many along the south coast of Labrador. The Nunatuavut Inuit are the beneficiaries of the 1764 and 1765 treaty between the British Crown and the Southern Labrador Inuit. The reality that Nunatuavut faces in many areas, but certainly in relation to child and family services is one of jurisdictional uncertainty. And uh, perhaps I'll place that in some uh, context for Nunatuavut. In 1991, a land claim was submitted uh, to Canada. In 2019, a memorandum of understanding uh, between Nunatuavut Community Council and Canada was entered to start uh, recognition of Indigenous rights and self-determination process. For groups like Nunatuvut, uh, without a modern land claim agreement, Nunatuvut is excluded from many federal programs. Uh, for example, Health Canada's uh, First Nation and Inuit Health Branch benefits and the Inuit-specific Child First initiative. Without the act, Nunatuva children and families uh, fall under the Newfoundland and Labrador Child, Youth and Families Act. Uh, simply put, the, the act is inadequate to meet the needs of Nunatuva children and families. It does not equal in any way the minimum standards found in the federal act. Issues involving protection and uh, fostering of children are necessarily time sensitive and urgent. So although Nunatuavut faces these jurisdictional uncertainties generally, for children, a multi-year process of uh, an RERSD negotiation or land claim, a negotiation implementation simply inadequately addresses their needs. The minimum standards provided in section uh, four of the act address that urgency. By allowing services uh, consistent with principles such as 
uh, cultural continuity and ongoing relationship with family and community. The act is an important step in allowing groups like Nunatuva Community Council, who are without a modern treaty, who uh, reside outside of the Indian Act, who are currently excluded from many federal programs, who may be in a claims process such as the RARSD process. Um, um, it, it gives the ability to uh, potentially govern in an area core to an indigenous group. And I think other parties have emphasized this too, but indeed core to all people. Um, protection of children and families is, is core to identity of any culture and really comes at its most uh, fundamental. Um, so uh, this, this act in our view addresses that and is consistent with uh, cooperative and flexible federalism and, and also flexible uh, uh, view on paramountcy. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Anderson. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. I represent the Lands Advisory Board, which is uh, an advocacy and support group for the First Nation parties to the Framework Agreement on First Nation Land Management. Under the Framework Agreement, a First Nation ratifies it by enacting a land code which becomes its fundamental land law with respect to its reserve lands. When that happens, uh, almost all of the land management provisions of the Indian Act are withdrawn or displaced and First Nations have self-government with respect to their reserve lands and resources. Since January the 1st, 2000, uh, 104 First Nations have enacted land codes. Uh, two of them have since gone on to conclude treaties and one uh, a self-government agreement. The purpose of the intervention uh, of the Lands Advisory Board is to provide an Aboriginal perspective on the issue of the Section 35 right of self-government and on the nature of Section 35 Indigenous laws. The first point I would make is that the Lands Advisory Board supports the Court of Appeal opinion on the Section 35 right of self-government. And we set that out in paragraphs one and two, uh, I'm sorry, one and 12 of our factum. The second point is that the Lands Advisory Board supports the Court of Appeal opinion on indigenous laws under the Act being Section 35 laws. We say that at paragraph two of our factum and describe the hallmarks of Section 35 laws at paragraphs four and five. Basically, Section 35 laws are cognizable as such because no other level of government is involved in their creation, their drafting, uh, any sort of pre-approval of the process of enacting the laws, and no other level of government has a right of veto or disallowance uh, over them. 
In short, these are not delegated laws. And in this respect, uh, the framework agreement, land code First Nations, uh, share those hallmarks in common with indigenous laws under the act before you. Third, the Lands Advisory Board supports the Court of Appeal opinion on the treatment of the Vanderpeet and Pimagewan tests. And these are particularly important and one might say toxic uh, to the Lands Advisory Board because of the way they have developed. Uh, and you've already heard much comment, even, even so, uh, I must turn uh, to, <laughs> Uh, to to the uh, to the decisions which I'm not asking you to turn to. Paragraph 24 of Pemajuan, uh, the court says, assuming without deciding that Section 35.1 includes self-government claims, the applicable legal standard is nonetheless that laid out in Vanderpeet, which was of course decided the day before. <clears throat> Moving down to the end of the paragraph insofar uh, as they can be made under Section 35.1 claims to self-government uh, are no different from other claims to the enjoyment of Aboriginal rights and must as such be measured by the same standard. Uh, the board respectfully submits that it is ludicrous uh, to compare uh, the situation in Vanderpeet, which was a First Nation woman bartering fish uh, with the legislative powers of, uh, of a government exercise by and for the community. So there is, there is a fundamental and conceptual and undoubtedly legal flaw right there. Then at paragraph 27, uh, the court says the appellants themselves would have this court characterize their claim as a broad right to manage their reserve lands. To so characterize the appellant's claim would be to cast the court's inquiry at a level of excessive generality. Now that is capable of an innocuous reading. The court may simply have been saying that the level of generality uh, does not get to the pith and substance of the actual bylaws uh, that were said to contravene the criminal code. But unfortunately, uh, the rule did not develop uh, in, in an innocuous fashion. I would ask you to conclude, your time is up. Uh, thank you, Justice. Uh, those, those are our submissions and subject to any questions, uh, we rely upon our factum and uh, Thank the court. Thank you very much. Uh, Jason Madden. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. Uh, we are here representing various Métis governments and organizations that represent the Métis Nation from Ontario westward. Our clients were a part of the development of the legislation and they fully support it. Time permitting, I want to touch on three points today. Understanding the act as a legislative tool in the reconciliation basket uh, is our first point. The role of the affirmation in Section 18, 
and the issue of referential incorporation in a, uh, is a legislative tool open to Parliament to adopt Indigenous law as federal laws. It's not a delegation. We need to develop a better language that is consistent with the recognition of section 35, in Section 35 that Indigenous peoples don't find their rights, laws, jurisdictions in Canada's constitution. They find them outside, and through Section 35, we strengthen Canada's constitutional legitimacy by bringing those laws, jurisdictions, rights within. Um, it's often the elephant in the room in these jurisdiction discussions. We are way past the days of St. Mil uh, Catherine's Milling, and we need to have better language that facilitates reconciliation. So first, I just want to start with what the act is and what it isn't. And I want to refocus on what uh, Justice Brown raised around what's actually in the constitutional reference. This is a question about an act that is legislatively anchored in Section 9124, not Section 35. A pith and substance analysis is a full answer to assessing the act. And it doesn't and it can't modify or fully define Section 35 rights. As ordinary legislation, it just can't do that. Our clients would like you to think of it as this. It's a legislative glove, so to speak, that an Indigenous community can voluntarily choose to put on and then benefit from a series of statutory rights that the scheme and the Act provides for. These communities still have their Section 35 rights outside of the Act if they wanted to go prove them based on Vanderpeet, the Powley case and, and reliance on Sparrow, those are still in the quiver. But if they're using the statutory scheme, they benefit from the statutory rights and also the referential incorporation that's in that scheme. It doesn't modify Section 35, and they don't also first need to prove a Section 35 in order to gain access to the legislative scheme. In some ways, this is very similar to the Indian Act. The Indian Act didn't define who Indians were for the purposes of 9124, as this court says in Daniels, can't modify treaty rights or rights that indigenous groups have as, uh, as Section 35 rights holders. And, but if you are in the parameters of going to prove those rights or where those rights are being denied or where those rights are being infringed, you're in the Pauli, Vanderpeet, uh, frameworks for proving rights. But I do want to say Section 35 is not that narrow. Justice Jamal, you keep on raising of, well, this, these are the tests, but this court in Haida and Taku, the, the, the provincial government said the same thing. Well, we can't give a right or we can't give a remedy before the right is fully established. And this court section says Section 35 create and combined with the honor of the crown creates the duty to consult and accommodate, which pending final settlement these rights can be addressed through that means. It has its limitations, similar to how this act has Well, we're its not talking about consultation here. We're talking about the uh, content of an Aboriginal right and the test for an Aboriginal right. And I come back to Vanderpeet, which I think still is the framework. One can have a debate that perhaps Vanderpeet should be swept aside. But until it's swept aside, it seems to me that it says uh, Aboriginal rights are not general and universal. Their scope and content must be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. So that, they didn't use the word generic, but when they say they're not generic, general and universal, it seems to me saying that it's not generic. It's, it's, it's community-specific and needs to be established on that basis. And that seems to me to be totally different than the issue of whether or not there is a duty to consult. 
I, I, I'm making the point that Section 35 is more broadly than just this. This case is not about first having to establish a Vanderpeet test in order to get benef the benefits of the statutory and legislative regime created by the Act. That's our point. It's different than other people's, but it is it, because there is no way that this, an ordinary piece of legislation, is a treaty or is modifying an, uh, that Aboriginal right that may be established by Vanderpeet. What this is creating is a statutory scheme that people can put on if they, if they so choose, and it isn't obligatory, and it isn't imposed, and then garner the statutory benefits under Section 9124 that the federal government says, well, here we will adopt these laws as federal laws in order to address this gap or the to be quite frank, jurisdictional logjam that Indigenous peoples constantly face, short of having to prove the full Vanderpeet Section 35 right. We still have those. They, the, this court has said in Shilkotan, Aboriginal rights don't lie within 91 or 92. They exist outside, and those rights still exist. This statutory scheme provides an interim measure or as a, along the continuum of reconciliation, a way of getting to there as opposed to every community having to go prove on a right by right community by community basis that they have this inherent jurisdiction which as people have indicated is obvious but this scheme allows you to essentially in legislative scheme allows you to ensure that you don't have to all go through and prove everyone's van right. repeat right that's well, the point i'm trying to make all right it, thank and, you and essentially your time, your time is affirmation up i'm sorry sir your time is up. There's a last question by Justice Martin. Thank you. I'd like to just ask you what role Section 18 then plays um, in, in your assessment. I don't see it referred to in your factum, but, and Section 18 isn't the only place that this piece of legislation <coughs> refers either to the um, inherent right of self-government or uh, jurisdiction over um, children. Thank you very much, Justice Martin. It means a lot because what the evidence shows in this case is that for 40 years, whether this right exists or not federally has been in clandestine policies or has evolved. What we say is now that it's in the legislation, the honor of the crown attaches to that. And if, if the government wants to amend it later on, they have to do it through parliament to essentially claw that right back. But we can essentially, in the, for a vernacular, take that to the bank and ensure that is the starting point in this legislation and that, that right is recognized and that the, uh, as Justice Kayser said yesterday, that the uh, executive as well as parliament is bound by it. It is not recognizing the right, but it's fundamental to the piece of legislation. And we disagree with Canada to say that if it, well, one, it's not moot. It, it actually has that purpose, and that's a very important purpose. And secondly, that even if you did remove it, the, the act still stands. We fundamentally disagree with Canada right. on that point. The, be based on 9124 and a pith and substance analysis, the legislation can stand on its own. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for the additional time. Thank you very much. Zachary Davis. Chief Justice, Justices, I want to make one point. The legal system in Canada has always been capable of recognizing and giving effect to the laws of Indigenous communities. The Act is just one more example of how this can be done. Quebec argues the opposite, 
that the governmental powers, including legislative powers of indigenous communities were never incorporated into the common law and are incompatible with crown sovereignty. Quebec then draws the erroneous conclusion that the effect of section 18 and following is to create a third order of government. Quebec is wrong. Section 18 does not create rights. Section 35 does not create rights. The jurisdiction of indigenous communities over family matters is inherent. It already exists. Indigenous communities are already an order of government. Once acknowledged, indigenous laws can be recognized by other orders of Canadian government in various ways, through the common law, through section 35, through trees, or by statute, including by the act. Why is this important? Because we heard yesterday that unless the right to self-government has its source in section 35, the whole act fails. This is not true. For the statutory scheme to work, indigenous communities need to have the power to make laws, and they do. That is their inherent power. It does not depend on delegation, and it does not depend on section 35. Understanding how Canadian law recognizes indigenous legal traditions allows sections 21 and 22.3 of the act to be understood for what they are, an implementation of indigenous law through federal statute, not an attempt to amend the constitution through the back door. The reality is that recognition of indigenous legal traditions is a defining feature of the Canadian constitutional order. Quebec ignores that in Siwi, this court explained that pre-Confederation treaties in what is now Quebec affirmed British policy of allowing First Nations autonomy over their internal affairs. Quebec ignores that in Connolly, the court found that the Royal Proclamation of 1763 tacitly acknowledged the continuity of Indigenous laws, which were undisturbed by the division of powers in 1867. This continuity of Indigenous laws is not theoretical. It is a reality that both provincial and federal governments acknowledge. Yesterday, Justice Kassir pointed out that the Civil Code of Quebec gives effect to Indigenous customary laws regarding family relations by incorporating them into the civil regime as adoption or tutorship. The Indian Act does the same thing, incorporating customary laws about adoption and leadership selection. And the Act does a very similar thing when it incorporates by reference Indigenous laws regarding child and family services. These statutory provisions do not depend on Section 35, they do not delegate, and they do not create Indigenous jurisdiction. They give statutory force to a small slice of something that is already there. They are contemporary examples of continuity and recognition. One strand of this thread, as articulated in the Mitchell case, is worth teasing out. Customary laws were absorbed into the common law as rights. And then, as stated in paragraph 11 of that decision, the enactment of section 35.1 elevated existing common law aboriginal rights to constitutional status. This is what section 18 affirms, that the common law rights entrenched as aboriginal rights by section 35 include the power to make indigenous laws regarding child and family services. But the scheme doesn't depend on that entrenchment. It depends on Indigenous communities' power to make laws at its heart. Despite this, Quebec wrongly argues that the Act would create an Indigenous order of government, and in so doing, and I quote, 
bring about a profound constitutional upheaval by the introduction of political institutions foreign to and incompatible with the Canadian system. This is a myth that must be dispelled. Indigenous orders of government already exist. Indigenous legal traditions are not foreign. Indigenous legal traditions are among Canada's legal traditions. The Act belies this myth with respect to child and family services by affirming a simple truth. Recognition of Indigenous laws is not new. It is as old as Canada itself. Thank you very Those much. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Logan. Thank you. The Congress of Aboriginal Peoples approaches these issues from a slightly different angle. CAP is a national organization representing off-reserve Indigenous people, including many in urban centres. CAP's membership includes off-reserve status and non-status Indians, many Métis, and Southern Inuit. Almost all Indigenous interveners have set out the perspective of Indigenous governments. CAP and its affiliates may well qualify as Indigenous governing bodies under the Act, but CAP also puts forward the perspective uh, of uh, off-reserve Indigenous persons who will be subject to Indigenous laws and decisions of Indigenous child welfare agencies under the Act. CAP agrees that the Act is an appropriate policy response to the crisis in Indigenous child welfare, the Act's national standards, and focus on culturally appropriate services provided by Indigenous agencies are a big step forward in addressing the crisis. However, CAP submits the, the better route for upholding the Act is as a valid exercise of Section 9124, jurisdiction for three reasons. First, it's more practical. Uh, the contours of uh, uh, the, the right to self-government are not uh, very well known at this point, and uh, there could be room for a lot of uh, litigation under the Sparrow Test, for example. Second, it's more predictable. If Indigenous laws have the force of federal law, there's much less room for debate as to their validity. Professor Hogg has called the right to self-government inchoate. It requires a legislative framework or self-government agreement to take concrete form. We have heard much uh, discussion about what might be included in the content of the inherent right and by what doctrinal route the right might be recognized. For example, whether Van der Peet test does or does not require supplanting or supplementing. But another dimension is the question of which collective holds the right and who represents them. Chill Cotton held that a traditional nation held Aboriginal title, not the several Indian Act bands that made up the nation. The same may be true of self-government. Desotel noted the difficulties of determining successor groups of historic nations. The administrative decisions of the federal government and others involved in implementing the Act may not coincide with the answer that the courts would give on these questions. And thirdly, recognizing indigenous laws as federal laws preserves meaningful charter review. If indigenous laws and decisions of indigenous agencies all emanate from a section 35 protected right to self-government as affirmed by section 18 of the act, then section 25 of the charter may be engaged. It will be argued that any attempt to challenge these laws and decisions under the charter is an impermissible abrogation or derogation of an Aboriginal right under Section 25. But if Indigenous laws and decisions under the Act have force because they are federal law, they are subject to full charter review. Now, Section 25 is, of course, before you in the Dixon appeal uh, in, in February. 
Upholding the Act under Section 9124 disposes of the reference question and it would not be necessary to go any further. If you do engage with the difficult questions of a right to self-government, that right should be delineated with care. It may be subject to internal limits, as will be argued in Dixon. It may also be appropriate to distinguish between the inchoate right, which exists independently of any particular legislation or decisions, and the legislation or decisions that give it concrete uh, expression. And if I may just uh, draw uh, an analogy here, uh, this would be similar to what the court has done with freedom of association. Freedom of association finds expression in labor statutes, but this court has stressed that the, the, the right to freedom of association cannot be equated with any particular model of labor relations. If a similar distinction is uh, drawn here between the inchoate uh, but existing uh, inherent rights to uh, self-government and the particular form that it finds in uh, this statute or other statutes or self-government uh, agreements, that may be another way to preserve meaningful charter review, which is uh, a matter of great importance uh, to those clients of the system, including many that are, that are represented by the Congress. Uh, I would also uh, point out that uh, the vast or substantial majority of indigenous persons now do live off reserve, including even the status Indian uh, population. And there are varying degrees of connectedness for historical reasons. There are some who have little or no connection to the reserves and the First Nations to which they are nominally assigned. Uh, subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you. Thank you very much. The court will break for lunch. We'll be back at 1.15. Thank you. The court. Merci, Dave Zasmo. Joel Pastura Sala. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. The First Nation Family Advocate Office takes no position on the constitutionality of the Act. Instead, it asks this court to make a statement affirming the continued existence of inherent First Nation laws as distinct and separate from colonial laws. 
the remedy for the failed colonial project and the crisis of child welfare will not be found in more colonial vetoes. It can only be found in a return to First Nation constitutional orders that were acknowledged in treaties and earlier cases such as Connolly. Guidance of this court is required to get us on a good path. A true sense of reconciliation demands no less. The Act respecting First Nations, Inuit, Métis, children, youth, and families is only a half step towards reconciliation. It is intended to address the well-being of Indigenous children. However, the laws created under the Act are constrained by the limits of Canadian laws and are subject to Canada's veto. There can be no doubt that First Nations had and continue to have their own laws on how they raise and care for children and families. Upon the arrival of settlers to Canada, First Nations were recognized as sovereign nations with their own distinct constitutional orders, including through treaties. Within 10 days of Canadian Confederation in 1867, the Quebec Superior Court in Connolly, found at tab five of our condensed book, held that it was, quote, beyond controversy that First Nation laws continued to exist after colonization. Connolly was affirmed by the Quebec Court of Appeal and remains good law. In 1912, this court even described Connolly as a celebrated decision in remarriage laws. Moving forward in 1982, the rights of Indigenous people were recognized and affirmed in Canadian law through Section 35. Since 1982, this court has never acknowledged the continued existence of First Nation laws distinct from Section 35. Today, we discuss First Nation children and families without any acknowledgement by the federal, provincial, or territorial governments that First Nations have their own laws about, how the, about the well-being of children and families that exist outside of the Canadian Constitution. After 150 years, it is becoming more and more apparent that Canada and the provinces have manifestly failed to look after First Nation children and families under Canadian laws. The Act's acknowledgement of the right to self-government of Indigenous people relating to child and family services does not go far enough. In practice, the Act fails to acknowledge that First Nations can raise and protect their children under their own laws, and as such, it creates a perverse incentive for First Nations to subject themselves to a colonial veto if they want to receive support and funding from Canada. The FNFAO takes no position on the outcome of this appeal. Instead, it asks this court for a clear statement 
that inherent First Nation laws, including First Nation laws with respect to children and families, continues to exist alongside and in relationship with common law and civil law. This would open the door to necessary conversations about the practicalities of our tri-juridical system. Governments and courts will continue to ignore and dismiss the existence of First Nation laws until guidance is given by this court that they must look to First Nation laws. Until First Nations are free from the colonial veto, reconciliation cannot be achieved. Merci, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. David Alderbridge. Good afternoon. This case is being argued only one generation removed from a prolonged period of what the government of Canada agrees was cultural genocide committed against First Nation children through the residential school system. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1997, which means that there were residential schools in Canada when Vanderpeet and Pemajuan were decided. Our collective consciousness, we would submit, has evolved significantly in the intervening 24 years. Parliament has finally affirmed that First Nations have the inherent right to govern their own affairs when it comes to their children. And I would say, of course they have that right. They're an autonomous Indigenous peoples. They've been self-governing since long before the first Europeans arrived. Almost every country in the world has endorsed UNDRIP, which confirms that Indigenous peoples have the inherent right to self-determination, to autonomy, and to self-government. Only four countries voted against UNDRIP, and all four have since come to endorse it. It is a global, universally recognized norm that Indigenous peoples have the inherent right to self-govern. And it is an inherent right. It's not created by the Canadian government or by the Constitution. As Ms. Pastora Sala indicated, Section 35 recognizes it, but it did not create it. And it is also a generic right. You know, the Charter, the Canadian Charter, is a panoply of generic rights. We don't require every single person who comes before this court or any court with a charter claim to show that religion or free speech was integral to their culture in 1534 when Jacques Cartier arrived. The inherent right to self-govern is generic. Uh, 1497, John Cabot. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Rowe, for the clarification. Uh, I, I stand by my point. Uh, so we know that this court has never formally acknowledged the universally, now universally recognized fact that First Nations have an inherent right to self-govern. And the time has come to do that, to, to confirm the practical reality that First Nations always have been self-governing and that they have the right to do so. And I'd say to you, recognizing the right to self-govern is the simple part. What is complicated for courts, uh, as some of the members of the court have highlighted, is, is the consequences of recognizing the right. Courts understandably have some hesitation about recognizing a right that could change the status quo because of what might happen. But there are moments in legal history where courts need to develop the law, not in an activist way, not in an interventionist way, just a role in recognizing that the rules of the past are no longer sufficient or adequate because our understanding of what is right has evolved. This case does not require you to explore every element of the right of self-government, only to recognize that the inherent right exists and that it provides for self-government in the area of child and family services. The boundaries of the right are for other cases 
and that's true whenever courts take incremental steps to develop the law. Uh, the courts, I mean, this court is certainly no stranger to modifying the law. Uh, well, know, I'm, look, look I'm, looking, I'm looking at your factum, and, and you suggest it's really that there may not be any boundaries. You say the right is plenary, and you say the First Nations are obviously entitled to govern all aspects. Um, now, that may be so, but, but, but I find that to be in tension with your suggestion that future cases can work out the boundaries. So I would say this, Justice Brown, self-government, first of all, means self-government. If you have a right to self-govern, you have a right to govern the integral aspects of your community, and that includes not just things that were integral uh, at the time of Cabot or Cartier, but things that are integral to any self-governing community. And so it, it is a broad right. But as has been highlighted, there are different legal orders in this country. There's the First Nation or Indigenous legal order, and there are the legal orders within the Constitution, and they do interact, and there are boundaries. And those boundaries are what would have to be fleshed out in future cases. I'm not saying that this court should decide those boundaries now, but there obviously are boundaries. So there will be fights and there will be adjudications on where self-government by First Nations ends and where other legal orders begin. But the fact that those boundaries have yet to be worked out is not a reason to not recognize the inherent right. You, you uh, accept, Mr. Uh, Outerbridge, presumably, that the, in light of what you said about Vanderbeek being decided a, you know, a generation ago, that the right you're claiming should be affirmed doesn't actually fit within the Vanderbeek framework? I agree, Justice Jamal. The, uh, the Vanderbeek framework, in Vanderbeek itself, was not argued as a self-government case. It was argued as an Aboriginal rights case relating to an individual seeking to barter fish. Pimaju, undecided the next day, was argued as a self-government case. And we do agree that Pimaduan, definitely Pimaduan, would need to be held to be wrongly to accept that there's an inherent right of self-government as a generic right. There's no question about that. Vanderpeet, uh, for the reasons we've said it in our factum, we say needs to be modified because it is, uh, it requires people to prove rights that should be treated as a given. And it requires people to uh, justify conduct that is inherently permissible and uh, available under a right of self-government. So you accept it wouldn't those. be really just a tweak. It would actually be a complete reconceptualization of the nature of Aboriginal rights because when Vanderpeet talks about Aboriginal rights being adjudicated on a specific rather than a general basis, what you're urging is, and what's been put to us from the Quebec Court of Appeal, is, is not a specific community-specific uh, uh, right, but one that's a, a more general, national, inherent right so the whole, it's not just a tweak, just so we, I'm, I'm clear, it isn't a tweak of Van der Piet, it's actually a replacement of the Van der Piet framework. Is that, is that fair? That is fair, Justice Jamal. We, we agree that it, is, it is not, right. should not remain the current law. Thank you very much. I'm sorry the time is up. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Megan Giltrow. Chief Justice, Justices. The First Nations of the Manal Treaty Society, which are modern treaty First Nations, have intervened to bring a relevant perspective to bear for the court on Quebec's submission that negotiated treaties are the preferred route to enablement of the uh, inherent right of, of self-government in this domain. And as we point to in our factum, the, the limitations within the Manals Treaty itself uh, are illustrative of this. The nations do have rights of self-government as laid out in the treaty in respect of uh, child protection services. However, uh, 
as we point out in the factum, treaties are themselves artifacts of what uh, governments are prepared to or bring a mandate to and prepared to negotiate and recognize at a point in time. What is today recognized by the federal parliament as, a, as an inherent right, which is the right to uh, make laws in respect of child, children and families that are not territorially limited uh, was not one that the parties were willing to recognize when the Manal Treaty was negotiated and hence it's not enshrined in the treaty. The right of self-government in the Manal Treaty is limited to treaty lands, uh, which is, as the as, as parties have noted, uh, more limited than the non-territorially limited right in, in recognized in the Act. And that's had real consequences. Uh, the Huayat First Nation is a, one of the Manal Nations, and we point to in our factum, that has been very active in seeking to improve outcomes for Huayat children and families through the tools available to it. Uh, but it has not legislated under its treaty power because um, most of its children and families live off treaty lands. Uh, hence the, the right and as enabled under the treaty has not proved effective in Huayat's um, endeavors to improve outcomes in its interface with the provincial child welfare system. Whereas the mechanisms under the federal act, which as we say in the factum, uh, the position of the Mantle Treaty Society is that these are valid mechanisms under the virus of the act, are much more immediately effective in allowing the tools of self-government, the tools of indigenous uh, inherent lawmaking authority to come to bear and to improve the outcomes and the interface with the child welfare system. What we're, the point we want to make is, is treaty is a tool and it is a good tool. So too is litigation, and these are tools in the service of reconciliation, the project of reconciliation, and the realization and enablement of pre-existing rights and pre-existing jurisdiction uh, in the Canadian legal structure. But so too is this act a tool, and we say a valid tool in doing so. Contrary to the submission that, that treaties should be the preferred route and the act is not itself a valid route to uh, the enablement of this, this jurisdiction. We say signing a treaty alone is not the fulfillment of reconciliation, it is but a step, and that treaties must evolve as Canadian law evolves to recognize the rights of Indigenous people. The court expects governments to act to implement the promise of reconciliation, and the courts have repeatedly encouraged the Crown and governments to respect Aboriginal laws, Aboriginal rights, and further reconciliation. Sparrow itself um, doesn't uh, doesn't tell governments that they should or even that they can wait until court declarations or future processes of negotiation to act to reconcile pre-existing rights. Sparrow says the promise of Section 35 is remedial and the, pro the project of reconciliation must proceed. And in fact, the justification test itself looks backward. It looks at what government has done before any declarations of rights have been made. And even when there has been a declaration of rights by the courts, it still falls to one level of government or another to implement those rights. And as the Ahousit case, which we point to in our factum points out, that may still require a return to the courts. Nothing in the act usurps the role of the court in being the ultimate arbiter of Aboriginal rights. And this act is one step or evolution in the ways in which the tools we use to recognize inherent just jurisdiction at a critical time and in a way that advances protections and recognitions. And for that reason, the Mantle First Nations have uh, intervened uh, and, and state their support for the act. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much.
Aaron Christoph. Kecha kise manitu tiswaino kakiao awisisa tepe kuyet. The Creator will bless all children to come home. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. I appear before you today as a proud Cree person and treaty person. I'm honored to speak on behalf of Tribal Chiefs Ventures, a tribal council of Treaty Six Nations in Alberta. In Alberta, Indigenous children have been described as big business with significant funding and jobs associated with putting them in care. Alberta's Office of the Child and Youth Advocate has confirmed as recently as 2022, September, that Indigenous children continue to be vastly overrepresented in care and in deaths in the child welfare system, making up about 80% of those deaths from October 2021 to March 2022. This is a completely tragic and unacceptable situation. For this reason, jurisdiction over child and family services is quite literally a matter of life and death for tribal chiefs, member nations, and their children. It is against this egregious state of affairs that tribal chiefs decided to intervene in this appeal. A preliminary note, Treaty 6 was entered into in 1876 between the Federal Crown and a number of nations across the prairies. Importantly, in our submission, Treaty 6 predates the creation of the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, which didn't come into being until 1905, almost 30 years later. With this in mind, I turn to our first key point that Treaty 6 and the underlying treaty relationship support the recognition of an inherent Indigenous right of self-government, which has not been abrogated, and for the purpose of this appeal with respect to child and family services. First of all, Tribal Chiefs is in complete agreement with the court below and many interveners who have spoken here today that an inherent Indigenous right of self-government exists with respect to jurisdiction over children and families. It can be characterized as generic, universal, or even as a basic human right, one supported by UNDRIP certainly not one that has to be established on a case-by-case -case basis. The AG of Alberta has suggested that the historical treaties somehow take away from the inherent right of self-government at the heart of appeal in its factum. Clearly, this is not the case. To the contrary, treaty is premised on an assumption of self-determination and self-government. As this court stated in RV Badger, it must be remembered that a treaty represents an exchange of solemn promises between the Crown and various Indian nations. It is an agreement whose nature is sacred. No later developments have changed its fundamental relationship or premise of self-government. Not the later creation of the provinces, nor the NRTAs, nor any kind of sovereignty legislation for that matter. To this point, this court recently held that the imposition of provincial and even international borders does not prevent the assertion of Section 35 protected rights, nor free the Crown of its obligation to deal with Indigenous people to reconcile those rights. In that regard, I would refer the court to Uishanawat and Desotel. That Canada has chosen to affirm this inherent right of self-government in regards to child and family services via the Act, including Section 18, is consistent with the treaty relationship and is a manifestation of the honor of the Crown. This flows to our second key point, which is both a legal and a practical one, that the honor of the Crown requires a cooperative approach in recognizing and implementing the inherent Indigenous right of self-government in regards to children and families. This court has previously held that un unwritten constitutional principles are invested with a powerful normative force and may give rise to substantive legal obligations on the part of government. The honour of the Crown is, of course, one such unwritten constitutional principle. Both Canada and the provinces are burdened by the obligations of treaty and therefore are both honour-bound to cooperate in recognizing and implementing the inherent Indigenous right of self-government, 
specifically with respect to children and families. This is what is contemplated by the Act. This need for cooperation is brought into sharp focus in the treaty context. Because the territorial boundaries of treaty differ from the provincial boundaries that were established later on, there is both a legal and practical need for this cooperation, both within individual provinces and in some instances across provincial boundaries. I will even note that there are some situations where communities within Treaty 6 territory have found themselves bisected by the provincial border. For this reason, Tribal Chiefs urges this court to weigh in on the need for cooperation between federal and provincial governments and Indigenous nations. Without this interjurisdictional cooperation, the implementation of Indigenous jurisdiction over their children and families would remain an empty promise, and the objectives of the Act and the implementation of the right of self-government would ultimately be frustrated. Only in achieving this interjurisdictional cooperation can the honour of the Crown be satisfied and reconciliation be affected. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gib Vanert. Chief Justice, Justices, in May 2016, a Minister of the Crown went to the United Nations in New York to announce to the world, but more importantly, to the Indigenous peoples of this country, that Canada was now a full supporter without qualification. So, the, the the, so a statement by a Minister of the Crown amends the Constitution. Is that it, Mr. Earp? Van Earp? Nope. It isn't, but it engages the honour of the Crown, and I'll be explaining that. Because what this statement is, is the most important promise the Crown has made to the Indigenous peoples of these lands since the Royal Proclamation of what, what if a subsequent Minister goes and contradicts that statement? Does the obligation disappear? Depends on which obligation you're talking about. Is it a matter of international law or is it a matter of Canadian law? I'm concerned with Canadian law, and my submission is that if the Crown were to try at this point to walk that back, then that would be a breach of the honour of the Crown. And this Court has always held, almost for as long as this Court has been a Court, that its responsibility is to ensure utmost probity of the Crown in its dealings with Indigenous peoples, with no sharp dealing to be tolerated. The honour of the Crown demands that. This Court says so in Badger. But in any event, that's not the scenario that we're faced with right now, quite the opposite. Since that promise happened, my clients, who together formed the First Nations Leadership Council of British Columbia, have been working jointly and closely with the federal government and the government of BC to keep the promise and to begin implementing the declaration in our law. And the law you're now considering is one of the first fruits of those, that effort. And it's telling, I say, that it is the very first legislative priority of BC First Nations in implementing this declaration that we start with their children. That's where they have chosen to start, and it speaks volumes. Now, I want to say this declaration is not about what Canadian law calls Aboriginal rights. It is instead about the human rights of Indigenous peoples. And Parliament is alive to that distinction. I want to note the contrast between what Vanderpeet says about Aboriginal rights being not general and not universal on the one hand, that's what Aboriginal rights are, and what Parliament says about the Declaration. The Declaration Act, Section 4A, expressly calls the Declaration a, quote, Yeah, but Mr. Van Ert, first it was a speech, now it's, it's, it's an act of Parliament, and these are given constitutional status. That is not how the Constitution is amended, or constitutional rights are founded. 
I'm not sure what you mean to say that someone's giving it constitutional status. All I'm suggesting is that there's no need to keep trying to fit square pegs into round holes here. We're not talking about Vanderpeet's template. We're talking about the right to care for one's children, which isn't just a right of indigenous peoples. It's a human right. We all have it. And so let's not allow ourselves to be distracted by a false dilemma here. What I ask this court to do is to give the proper interpretive weight to the UN declaration, which is what parliament wants you to do too. It's very clear on the face of this act and on the face of the UN declaration act itself. And, and doing so is not in any way offensive to the constitutional concerns that Justice Roe is raising. It has always been part of our constitutional arrangements that the crown is expected to fulfill its promise promises to indigenous peoples. And so I say the way that this court can do that is by adopting a rebuttable interpretive presumption that our laws, whether it's section 35, the rest of the constitution or ordinary statutes conform with the declaration. Now I want to be clear, that would be a rebuttable declaration uh, presumption because all interpretive presumptions are. And I want to also say this, if you do accept the weight of the declaration as I'm proposing, you will not put the judiciary at the forefront of implementing the declaration. The judiciary is not going to be at the forefront, nor should it be. The task of implementing the declaration is chiefly one that rests on indigenous peoples themselves in consultation and cooperation with governments and legislatures. Courts shouldn't be at the forefront of it. Legislatures and indigenous peoples and governments should be. Mr. Vanner, can you just answer this question? If, if this court were to uh, recognize an inherent right of self-government in respect of children and, and families, um, would that increase legis uh, litigation and bring everything into the courts, as some contend? Or, or does it just uh, lay a path for negotiation on a basis of accepted principles? Well, it's hard to read into the crystal ball and see how much more litigation is coming. But I'll say this. The whole hope that my clients have around the declaration is that instead of vindicating their rights through Vanderpeet litigation processes that take years and require huge amounts of money and time, instead of all that, we can go straight to the governments and the legislatures themselves and talk together consultively and cooperatively about how to achieve an implementation of the declaration. That process has started, it is succeeding so far, and what we ask this court not to do is to make some statement about the declaration being merely relevant and persuasive and no more important in Canadian law than, say, a decision of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. That would set us off course when we want to stay out of the courts and resolve this matter through negotiation and consultation. You, as I understand your submission, Mr. Van Ert, you're saying that the, uh, an Aboriginal right and the Van Der Peet test is fundamentally the wrong paradigm through which to review the human rights, fundamental human rights, not Aboriginal rights, fundamental human rights affirmed in this legislation and affirmed in, the, uh, in UNDRIP. Is that, is that fair? That is right. I don't think there's anything in Van Der Peet to suggest that if Indigenous peoples wanted to show a right to care for their children or to have clean water, they had to prove that those things were distinctive to their indigenous culture or tradition. That's absurd. That's not what Vanderpeet was aimed at. And so Section 35 surely has room for Canadian 
notions of Aboriginal rights, which are very important and part of our legal tradition, but also the international respect of Indigenous human rights that the Crown has now committed itself to and the whole world has committed itself to in the UN Declaration. All right. Thank you very much. Jessica Horkin. Good afternoon. I have uh, two points, or at least hope to make two points. Uh, the first is how the proposed self-government right is consistent with this court's jurisprudence. And the second, if I get to it, is how the act operates. And this question that's been raised as to whether it's delegation under 9124 or referential incorporation. And I say it can and is both. But starting with my first point, as a preliminary point, I would say that the Asper Center urges you not to allow concerns about defining the outer limits of Section 35 right of self-government to prevent this court from recognizing a jurisdiction that lies at its very core. And the only question that is before this court is whether there's an inherent Indigenous right of self-government in respect of child and family services. And I offer two alternative approaches to how recognition of this inherent Indigenous right in respect of child services is consistent with this court's jurisprudence and represents a measured incremental development of the law. Now, I say this without resiling from the position that we put forward in our factum, that if it is required, if resort to it is required, the Bedford standard is also satisfied. But looking as the first option, looking to the Vanderpeet test, we say that Section 35 must include protection of jurisdiction over matters that are necessary for cultural continuity and survival of Indigenous people as peoples, and that this is the very purpose of Section 35. Now, I think this is actually a restatement of the essence of Vanderpeet that a self-government jurisdiction that's necessary for cultural continuity and survival is necessarily integral to the distinctive culture of an Aboriginal people, of an Indigenous people. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying this is the outer limit of the right of self-government. I'm saying it is a core, a necessary core. And recognition of this core is entirely consistent with the essence of Vanderpeet. It does not involve a fundamental reevaluation of Vanderpeet, but rather an incremental development. Now, Justice Jamal has, has asked several questions today about how an Indigenous people might demonstrate that uh, they possess this, this right of self-government in respect of child services, and how it is consistent with the statements in Vanderpeet that, that proof has to be specific to an Indigenous claimant. Now, this requirement from Vanderpeet that proof must be specific has shaped Aboriginal rights litigation uh, to date around particular practices in particular places. And the evidence that might be required for some self-government jurisdictions may similarly require specific proof, as was the case in Pomajawan. But I'd submit that for other self-government jurisdictions, the ones at this very core of cultural continuity and survival, you will not necessarily need different evidence for each claimant. And this is the case, I would say, for this jurisdiction. This doesn't mean that we've abandoned the requirement of specific proof. It means that the proof that applies to one First Nation, one Indigenous people, may be equally persuasive for another. It might also mean that logic and judicial notice might suffice. Again, this is not an abandonment of the requirement of proof. It is a recognition of the nature of the right that is being put forward. And it's not a radical departure from this court's jurisprudence, I would suggest. Well, the, 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 argument the, second... that, the argument that we've been hearing 
is um, in some, uh, from some parties, including some interveners yesterday, is that <clears throat> it's, it's universal that, that, that all indigenous communities value their children, that they place great importance on their children and on the regeneration of the community, which, and so, and so I think the, the argument is really one of judicial notice and maybe we can take judicial notice of that. That seems to me not an unreasonable proposition. But the importance of the subject isn't the same thing as its regulation, right? The importance may be universal, but it doesn't follow that the universal, uh, that the regulation is universal. Different societies regulate child welfare in vastly different ways. Um, and, and so it follows, I think, that indigenous communities as distinct communities may each have different ways of dealing with the regulation of children and families. So um, I, I guess this goes to the concept of distinction as, as Vanderpeet put it, but you can see what I'm struggling with is, is the importance of the subject is not what, what Vanderpeet requires to, um, uh, is not what Vanderpeet speaks about. It, it speaks about distinctive communities and maybe the answer is, like so many others, that, well, Vanderpeet is so 1996 and, and we need to move on. Um, there, there are a number of points uh, in, in your question, Justice Brown, and I, I hope I'll be given the indulgence of some time to, to respond to them. Uh, the first one, uh, I think, relates to this question of universality and generic versus specific in Vanderpeet. Um, and then I think the second has to do with the practice um, and whether that is a distinct uh, test or required to be a distinct test. And if I might answer both of those. Um, the first, as to, I, I think that the, the, the focus on universality or generic versus specific in relation to this right is unnecessary. I think that judicial notice and the nature of the right provides us with the answer. And there may be future rights where, where this, this generic question must be grappled with and, and bitten off. This is not that case. And uh, it is enough, I think, to say that specific rights will be recognized for each, first, for each Indigenous people and may well be. And the logic that we use to reach there is sufficient in this circumstance. Turning to the second question that you asked, this relates actually to the second point I was going to make of another way that uh, the recognition of this right can be seen to be consistent with its court's jurisprudence, and it's actually outside of Vanderpeet. Vanderpeet uh, and other cases were very clear that Section 35 didn't create Aboriginal rights, and a category that existed under the common law was the right of indigenous peoples to have laws and to make laws around matters relating to adoption, marriage, and family relations. And this is recognized in all the case law that's been discussed. Now, the, the type of self-government that we're speaking about here falls squarely within this category. And Mitchell, which is a case that postdates Vanderpeet, refers to this category of law and this category of recognition under the common law and makes it clear, paragraphs 9 through 11, that they were absorbed into the common law as rights and then constitutionalized as part of Section 35. But the question has always remained, do you have to meet the Vanderpeet test for that, for, to, to fall within one of those common law rights? Now, Justice Rowe's decision in Desotel from 2020 leaves the question open. It's paragraph 68. The doctrine of imperial succession that 
was not limited to practices, traditions, or customs that were integral to the distinctive society. And as Justice Rowe said at paragraph 68, this suggests that the test for a common law right may be met even where Vanderpeet is not. I would ask and you to conclude, I, please. And I would suggest that is another way that we might uh, find consistency with Vanderpeet and this court's jurisprudence. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for the indulgence. Thank you. François Tremblay. Bonjour. Nous représentons les Premières Nations de Pikwagaminus, Mastayash, Nutaquan et Yassipit qui négocient par le biais de Petapan un traité depuis près de 40 ans, un traité de nouvelle génération qui devrait permettre de reconnaître le droit inhérent à l'autonomie gouvernementale, y compris quant à la protection des enfants autochtones par le biais d'un traité, euh, et ce qui suppose que les principes ou les, les positions prises par le Québec mettent en péril cette négociation-là. Euh, pour quelle raison? Parce qu'on nous dit que pour reconnaître un droit inhérent, il faut un amendement constitutionnel ou passer le test de Van de Piet euh, avec un droit spécifique pour chacune des Premières Nations, ce qui risque fort d'amener beaucoup, beaucoup de dossiers devant la Cour. Ce qui est important de noter aussi, c'est qu'il y a des blessures au sein de ces communautés. À titre d'exemple, les droits ancestraux des Picpogamienuts ont, euh, ont été éteints dans le cadre des lois qui ont mis en place la Convention d'Abbé James et ont été éteints sur des territoires qui faisaient partie de, des territoires ancestraux de, de cette Première Nation, des puis sans respecter les dispositions de la proclamation royale. Incidemment, qui prévoyait que Incidemment, c'est qu'il faut garder à l'esprit que cette proclamation royale, par cette proclamation royale, le droit impérial britannique reconnaissait que les Premières Nations peuvent être transgivées directement avec la Couronne et ainsi contribuer à l'édification du Canada. Par la suite, la méthode de négociation encouragée par la Couronne a été de dire euh, on va échanger vos droits dans le cadre de traités, vos droits ancestraux qui font partie intégrante de votre culture distinctive. On va les échanger pour des droits modifiés et sous-traités. Cette situation crée par des droits sous-traités une problématique que c'est en vertu du traité que ce droit existe. Ça ouvre aussi une problématique à le fait qu'on parle de droits délégués, comme cela a été euh, mentionné dans les affaires Campbell et Chief Mountain euh, de, de l'Ouest du pays. Dans ce contexte, la position adoptée par les Premières Nations a été d'explorer de, de, une nouvelle façon que d'avoir au lieu des droits issus de traités, on avait des droits inhérents et autres qui étaient non seulement reconnus, mais continués et protégés par le traité, y compris le droit inhérent à l'autonomie. Cette approche est évidemment celle qui avait été encouragée par le professeur Brian Slattery dans son fameux article sur « Making sense of Aboriginal and Treaty Rights » et permet donc, dans un premier temps, de reconnaître ces droits-là, de les continuer les procédés, mais selon ces droits s'exercent selon les effets et modalités négociés minutieusement par les parties. Évidemment, cette euh, entente de principe n'a pas de valeur juridique, mais elle comporte une disposition claire que les parties, dans l'honneur, s'engagent à faire un traité qui va être substantiellement conforme aux engagements pris dans l'honneur par la Couronne. Évidemment, c'est que dans ce dossier, la négociation 
des effets et modalités exigent une grande, une grande attention. Et le problème qui se produit actuellement, c'est qu'en cours de négociation, le Québec vient nous dire qu'il n'est pas possible pour lui de reconnaître le droit inhérent par traité, sinon qu'il lui faut un amendement constitutionnel ou que l'on s'adresse à la Cour pour obtenir une décision sur un droit spécifique à l'autonomie gouvernementale. Cette situation, la, cette situation met en péril toute l'architecture du traité, du futur traité. Cette situation aussi n'est pas conforme à l'engagement que la Cour suprême a pris d'inciter les gouvernements à négocier euh, des, des traités qui permettraient de, de, de régulariser les tensions qui existent actuellement entre les communautés autochtones et la Couronne. En nous demandant de nous, prononcer à chaque, de nous présenter à chaque cas devant la cour, le, le, le tribunal pour faire état euh, de, de cette situation-là, on, on ne crée pas le chemin propice à une négociation qui va reconnaître la souveraineté préexistante des Premières Nations et la souveraineté proclamée de la, de la Couronne. On parle bien de souveraineté et à ce moment-ci, c'est que nous réitérons que la voie honorable, la voie du futur, la voie la voie qui permettra de véritables réconciliations, c'est que l'on puisse, par traité, reconnaître les droits inhérents des de, 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 de Premières Nations et que ces droits s'exercent selon les effets et modalités honorablement négociés par les trois parties. Merci, M. Tremblay. Jesse Archery. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. For my submissions this afternoon, you should have a copy of the Canadian Constitution Foundation's condensed book and specifically our outline of argument, which is at tab A of that book, um, will be important. We acknowledge, the, the CCF acknowledges that Parliament has the authority to adopt laws in relation to Indigenous child and family services. That is not in dispute in this case. As the Attorney General of Quebec rightly notes, the question before the court, at least on the provisions in the first part of the Act, are who must execute this law? In other words, who can be required to carry it out and enforce its provisions? This court's case law already answers that question. From the Willis case in 1952, to the 2018 Pan-Canadian Securities Reference, this court has always held that the federal government cannot distort the federal structure and use the provincial executive to its own ends without its consent. And we cite Professor Poirier at McGill, who has done a lot of work on this, and we commend that work to you. And we'd ask you to reaffirm that case law in this reference. And it's surprising that the Attorney General of Canada does not even mention this jurisprudence in his factum, nor does he attempt to distinguish it in any way. The division of executive power provided in the Constitution is a fundamental aspect of Canada's federal structure and also serves to maintain responsible government. And the Attorney General of Canada comes to this court and proposes to upend both of those principles. Now, we acknowledge in our factum that the court has permitted administrative interdelegation between the orders of government in the name of flexibility. But, and this is the crucial point that we make in our factum, administrative interdelegation is only permitted if it's done consensually. 
that has been consistently reaffirmed by this court. And the provinces have sometimes availed themselves of the right to decline to carry out and enforce federal laws themselves. We cite in our factum the abortion example in Quebec in the 1970s and 80s, but there are many other examples, including the fact that some provinces more recently have declined to investigate and prosecute HIV-positive individuals in certain circumstances. And so instead of abiding by that settled law, the Attorney General of Canada cites a case, Alberta Government Telephone, that holds that provincial officials can be required to comply with federal laws in some cases. Crucially, that case is not about who has to administer federal laws or execute federal laws. The legal question in AGT is simply not at issue in this reference. And I want to end by providing just an example of the concepts that I've gone through here today and that we go into detail um, in our factum. Assume for a moment that both orders of government could adopt legislation in relation to education. Now, it's a hypothetical example, of course, but it's just for the purpose of illustration. Now assume that the provinces have developed a complete education curriculum. They've hired teachers to implement it. And then the federal government comes in, adopts a tailored law that requires every Canadian in grade 10 to take a financial literacy course. How would that be operationalized based on this court's binding authority? Well, if both laws are valid, ordinary citizens have to comply with both laws, federal and provincial. And any provincial officials or public servants who didn't have a high school diploma, for example, and wanted to get one, would have to also take that financial literacy course. That's what Alberta government telephones speaks to. But the provinces can decline to carry out and enforce that federal law. In other words, the federal government would have to create its own mechanism for delivering the course or permit private delivery, for example, and take enforcement measures if needed. Crucially, it would have to do this with its own funds. The other option is for the federal government to ask the provinces if they would do the work for them, to cooperate, as this court has said. But one thing is clear from the court's case law. A province is not obliged to do that work themselves. Subject to any questions, those are our submissions. Thank you very Thank much. You. Mr. Scott Smith. Good afternoon. My submission today is that Parliament has the constitutional authority pursuant to its Section 9124 power to legislate in relation to Indigenous children and families to pass the Act and, in so doing, to recognize and provide a framework for implementing the universal but very specific element of the Section 35 right to self-government, which is the, this case is narrowly limited to jurisdiction over children and families. The court's Section 35 jurisprudence establishes three central principles which provide a strong basis for upholding the validity of the Act. First, the court has consistently recognized that the grand purpose of Section 35 is to effect the reconciliation of the pre-existence of distinctive Indigenous societies with the assertion of Crown sovereignty. 
In the words of the Court of Appeal of Quebec at paragraph 562, this requires preserving the constitutional space for Indigenous peoples as distinct political actors and creators of law. The Act does just that. It implements the paradigm shift introduced into our constitutional landscape by Section 35 by recognizing the jurisdiction of Indigenous peoples over their children and families. This paradigm shift is not a controversial or novel one. As Justice Rowe observed yesterday, treaties already recognize Indigenous governments as a third or perhaps a first order of government in Canada. Second, the court's jurisprudence establishes that the honor of the Crown requires it to delineate Aboriginal rights so that they can be recognized and respected. The Act does so by recognizing the specific element of the right to self-government in relation to children and families and providing a basis for Indigenous peoples to implement it. That right has existed since before Confederation. The Campbell case confirms Indigenous peoples retained that right despite the Crown's assertion of sovereignty and the subsequent federal-provincial division of powers in 1867. That basic human right which is common to all Indigenous communities and essential for their cultural survival, continues to exist today and is recognized and affirmed by Section 35. Third, the Court's jurisprudence has confirmed that negotiated outcomes should be encouraged and preferred over litigated ones. Yesterday, you heard from AFN that the Act reflects the compromises inherent to Canada and Indigenous peoples co-development of the Act. Parliament's use of this novel legislative tool is further justified by the moral imperative to address the humanitarian crisis of the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in Canada's child welfare system. Simply put, Indigenous communities are best placed to remediate that crisis. The Act eliminates the near insurmountable preliminary hurdle of having to prove or negotiate the existence of the right on a community-by-community -community basis. This is of critical importance to the Cary-Sakani interveners, as 40 years of negotiations with Canada have not resulted in the recognition or implementation of any element of the right to self-government. Accordingly, I submit that the Attorney General of Quebec's argument that only a court declaration, treaty, or constitutional amendment can recognize and implement the specific element of the Section 35 right at issue in this appeal must be rejected in favor of upholding the constitutionality of the Act, and in particular of Section 18. Mr. Mr. Smith, I'm sorry, I know you have limited time, but I have a question about paragraph 18 of your factum. And, yes. and in, 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 in paragraph 18, you dispute that the federal government can declare such Indigenous laws under Section 21 sub 1 of the Act federal law. And, and I, was, I was wondering if you could explain that. I, I, I kind of took it from your argument that it was because the Indigenous laws are laws by operation of the inherent right to self-government and therefore does yeah. not, is not lie in Parliament's mouth to give them legal force as laws of Parliament as well. Is, is, am I understanding that right? 
You are. Uh, my argument is that the indigenous laws are enacted pursuant to Section 35 jurisdiction, okay. and therefore the incorporation as federal laws is not required. So to conclude, uh, the but court does that, has but does, Sorry, does that not, uh, Chief Justice, may I ask another question? Thank you. Does that not then also call into validity the, the earlier part of the act, the, 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 national, the national principles of Indigenous child and family welfare? Because um, you may have your own laws, and, and, and on the basis of the inherent right of self-government, um, those standards might not be binding if we take that inherent right seriously and therefore the act may be self-defeating. I'm trying to understand this. Yes, thank you for your question. My submission is that Parliament clearly has the constitutional authority under 9124 to enact the national standards. I think that's very clear. Uh, Justice Brown, you put your uh, finger on a question that we addressed later on in our factum. Uh, which uh, I think is a, something that we would encourage the court to consider, which is, in my submission, the issue underlying the constitutionality of sections 21 and 22.3 of the Act, and that's a conflict of law problems. And that is what happens when a law passed pursuant to the section 35 jurisdiction interacts with section 91 and 92 laws. So 91 would be the national standards, 92 would be a right, lot. And I saw that and you, urged a new and you urged a new framework on us. I, I do okay. think that that, yeah. that is required and that will uh, help uh, reduce further litigation going forward. Thank right. you. For Thank you, question. Mr. Thank you very much. Maître Boilly. Alors, c'est à moi, vous m'entendez? Oui, on vous entend, allez-y. Parfait, merci, j'avais manqué le début. Donc, euh, monsieur le juge en chef, monsieur, messieurs et mesdames les juges, donc, Koué, euh, bonjour à tous. Euh, D'abord, euh, ma cliente, le conseil des Atikamekw euh, d'Opitswan, vous remercie de lui accorder le privilège d'exprimer devant vous leur réalité, mais aussi leurs euh, préoccupations, ainsi que celles des familles euh, Atikamekw d'Opitswan, suite à l'entrée en vigueur de leur loi qu'ils ont appelé la Loi de la protection sociale à Tikamek d'Opitswan, la LPSAO, et à la décision de la Cour d'appel. Donc, conformément à notre demande, notre, notre intervention et mes commentaires vont être axés sur l'expérience pratique de la communauté, donc étant la première à avoir adopté la seule loi d'un corps dirigeant autochtone au Québec, en vertu de la loi fédérale et plus particulièrement sur l'inconstitutionnalité des articles 21 et 22.3 par la Cour d'appel du Québec. La volonté des Atikamekw d'Opitsuan d'exercer leurs compétences sur leurs enfants est présente depuis plusieurs décennies au sein de la communauté et fut renforcée par les récentes, récentes investigations sur les systèmes de protection de la jeunesse. À la base, les enfants atikamekw sont surreprésentés, on en a parlé amplement, sur les rôles d'audience de notre région. Cela est explicable en partie par les difficultés socio-économiques de ce peuple, mais aussi par l'inadéquation du système québécois 
de protection de la jeunesse avec les valeurs atikamekw, d'où euh, la méfiance des Autochtones face à ce régime. Donc, dès, dès l'entrée en vigueur de la loi fédérale, le Conseil a mis en place des ressources considérables, tant euh, humaines que matérielles, afin d'être pleinement opérationnel pour exercer sa compétence envers ses enfants, et ce, peu importe où l'enfant peut se trouver. Le Conseil a fêté le premier anniversaire de l'adoption de la LPSAO le 2 novembre 2021. Donc, l'entrée en vigueur est survenue le 17 janvier dernier. Le Conseil a donc un historique de près de 11 mois d'opération. Est-ce que, faut... Maître Boilly, je peux vous poser la question, est-ce qu'il y oui, avait un accord de coordination mis sur place? Ah. Il n'y en avait pas. Et... Que... Il n'y en, en avait pas, effectivement. Et est-ce qu'il y avait, avez-vous fait, comme l'article euh, euh, 23b prévoit, en l'absence d'un accord de coordination, est-ce qu'il y avait des efforts raisonnables dans l'année qui suivait la date de présentation de la demande? Effectivement. Il y, a, il y avait des efforts. Il y a des efforts qui ont été faits. Donc, euh, euh, effectivement, l'article en question euh, a été euh, respecté et c'est pourquoi qu'au terme du processus, la loi euh, a, été, euh, a été adoptée. Et adoptée, non seulement adoptée, mais dotée de, de forces de loi fédérale aussi. Exactement. C'est une condition ou bien l'accord de coordination ou bien les efforts raisonnables pour pouvoir profiter de ce, cette force de loi. Avez-vous, avez je ne sais pas si vous avez réfléchi à la, à la situation, si vous, vous me dites qu'il n'y avait pas d'accord de coordination, s'il y avait une absence d'efforts raisonnables, est-ce que votre loi aurait été dotée de forces de loi fédérale et sinon, quelle aurait été sa force de loi. Au niveau des efforts, comme je l'ai mentionné tout à l'heure, c'est clair que le Conseil, la volonté du Conseil était de se, de, de se prémunir de cette, de cette compétence. Donc, de son, de son côté, la volonté était effectivement là pour respecter les conditions de l'article. Et vous m'avez devancé à peine dans le cadre de, de ma présentation. J'étais justement pour vous dire qu'il y avait des efforts raisonnables qui avaient été déployés pour conclure l'accord de coordination avec le gouvernement du Québec, mais malheureusement, il n'y a pas eu de résultat. Ce qui fait euh, en sorte que euh, dès l'entrée euh, en vigueur de la LPSAO, LPSAO, donc il est devenu évident, rapidement évident, qu'un mécanisme de résolution des conflits et qu'un ordre de préséance devait être, été, devait être établi pour justement avoir un exercice harmonieux de cette compétence et atteindre l'objectif de réconciliation. Et euh, je vois euh, suite également à l'entrée... Non, mais je vais, je vais vous laisser de plus de temps là, pour terminer vos arguments. Oui, merci, euh, M. le juge en chef. Donc, euh, le, le, suite à l'entrée en vigueur, il y a également euh, la question de, le, du transfert des dossiers avec la direction de la protection de la jeunesse sur lequel euh, ça, ça, les, il y a eu un transfert des dossiers pour les enfants qui vivaient sur la communauté 
mais le, de la part du gouvernement du Québec, mais le même raisonnement n'a pas été appliqué pour ceux qui euh, résidaient à l'extérieur du territoire de la communauté et qui a amené au jugement de la juge Doris Thibault, dans lesquels les autres partis euh, en ont parlé, là, notamment lors de la euh, journée euh, d'hier. Et j'ai cru comprendre que son jugement avait été euh, produit, là, comme anglais, au soutien du cahier du procureur général du euh, Québec. Et euh, compte tenu de donc, donc, toutes ces démarches-là, euh, on fait en sorte d'alimenter les préoccupations euh, du Conseil avec l'inconstitutionnalité des articles 21 et euh, 22.3 qui, justement, on veut éviter la, ju la judiciarisation de, de, de tous ces dossiers-là, de faire du cas par cas et d'être obligé de s'adresser aux tribunaux à toutes les fois. Le Conseil désire avoir un, un processus, une procédure, ce qu'il retrouve dans C-92 qui, justement, facilite l'exercice de la compétence. Et si vous me permettez, je, je conclurai de cette façon, c'est que depuis l'entrée en vigueur de la LPSAO, l'organe décisionnel qui était prévu à, ce, à cette loi-là, qui est un conseil d'arbitrage, n'a pas eu à se pencher sur le cas d'un seul enfant de la communauté, alors que les dossiers antérieurs de nombreux enfants à Tikamek ont dû faire l'objet de multitudes de décisions de la Cour du Québec, Chambre de la jeunesse. Merci, M. Voilly. Merci. Keith Brown. Chief Justice, Justices, I'm here on behalf of the Vancouver Aboriginal Child and Family Services Society. My submissions today are going to focus on the court's questions on the recognition of Section 35 rights through legislation and how that plays into the division of powers analysis. I submit that the content of Section 35 rights can be recognized through legislation and provisions like Section, 9, Section 18 of the Act are not surplus. As you've heard, this court has stressed that the Crown and legislatures are bound to determine recognize and respect rights and to do so outside of the courtroom where possible. And this is exactly what has occurred here. The Crown, Parliament and Indigenous peoples collaborating to recognize what is, as Justice Karakatsanis noted earlier today, a specific and tailored aspect of the self-government right. And this is an excellent example of rights recognition without court involvement. Building on Mr. Madden's submission earlier today, If this kind of provision has no effect, there would be very little room for our country's elected representatives to play in the process of reconciliation. Further, legislatures in my submission are not bound to mechanically apply the Vanderpeet test before they can pass legislation. You've already heard that Parliament can legislate on a broader conception of Section 35 than what the courts have yet set out. I add that the same is also true of the executive during treaty negotiations. No one is sitting at the treaty table applying the Vanderpeet test, and that's not what happened in the development of the act, as counsel for AFN took you through yesterday. And there's a parallel here, one that's based on collaborative rights recognition outside of the courtroom, as this court has directed. By contrast, Vanderpeet is a judicial tool to apply when parties disagree on the content of Section 35 in adversarial, fact-specific contexts. That is not the situation that we are in here, and this court does not need to delve into the Vanderpeet test to resolve these appeals. 
the only issue on these appeals if we pull ourselves back up to the actual constitutional questions that are before the court are division of powers questions. Does Parliament have the constitutional competence to recognize within Canadian law this tailored aspect of the self-government right? And I submit that the answer is yes. Parliament and legislatures are both empowered and indeed duty-bound to recognize and delineate Section 35 rights within their respective areas of competence under the division of powers. And the subject matter at issue here falls within Parliament's jurisdiction under 9124 for the reasons that you've heard these past two days. Now, the Attorney General of Canada relies on Canadian Western Bank for the proposition that Parliament can make law under 9124 for matters that are indispensable and essential to the cultural survival of Indigenous peoples. And in response to comments Justice Brown made earlier today, this passage from Canadian Western Bank actually goes farther than that. It says that such matters are not just within 9124, but they're at its core. But we don't have to decide that. All we're deciding is whether it's within 9124. Whether it That's goes, correct. I mean, we're not, we're not challenging the applicability, we're not looking at the applicability of a provincial law here, but the validity of a federal law. That's correct, and I, 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 point, to, um, I point to the Canadian Western Bank case as well as Natural Parents, which is of similar effect, to simply show that, at minimum, the Act falls squarely into 9124. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I have that from point, those but, cases. But yeah, but you're right. It, uh, if it falls within the core, it clearly falls within the, the global jurisdiction, but, um, but we're not having to decide the core. Yes, Justice Brown, that is correct. And uh, I'd like to close my submissions on a slightly different note, speaking to the geographic scope of Section 9124. And this court should make clear that the power over Indians applies both on and off reserve, and so does the Act. There is no constitutional basis to find otherwise, and a contrary view leads us back down the path of assimilation. That First Nations people are somehow less Indian when they leave the reserve and join mainstream society, a pernicious stereotype that this court discussed in Corbier. Clarity on this point is critical. The child welfare crisis is rooted in jurisdictional wrangling and Canada's attempts to offload its responsibilities for Indigenous children onto the provinces, which was particularly pronounced for off-reserve children. As Ms. Metallic submitted yesterday, Canada exercised its jurisdiction to create this problem. Surely it has the jurisdiction to help address it. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Julian Faulkner. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. I, along with my colleagues, Christopher Rapson and Mitchell Goldenberg, have the honor of representing Nishnabiaski Nation before this honorable court. Nishnabiaski Nation, as the materials bear out, is a uh, political territorial organization consisting of 49 First Nations, 34 of whom are fly-in communities. It uh, occupies uh, both Treaty 9 and Treaty 5 territory in Northern Ontario. To give you, you a sense of uh, the expanse of the geography, it is larger than the country of France. So 
It is not surprising that Anishinaabeaski Nation has developed as a voice for remote communities and is a party before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal on, uh, on litigation arising from the Caring Society and AFN case. What Nan wishes to emphasize here today and has done so in other courts is it does not seek this honorable court's permission to exercise its jurisdiction over its children. It sees the question of its children, Nan children, as an existential question defining who they are as humans and as Indigenous people. I want to emphasize the incongruity between attempting to discuss how a woman, Dorothy Vanderpeet, sought to sell 10 salmon in the same words as the exercise of inherent jurisdiction over children. The legal analysis that has been the subject of extremely learned debate by my colleagues and this court, and I, I will not claim to aspire to that level, is a twist in how can we fit within this Vanderpeet test when we are talking about completely different paradigms. It is true that what fits in the existential basket will not always be easy to define what's in and what's out. But you know you've found it in certain very defined circumstances, and this is one of them. Children. It defines humanity. And so it isn't necessary to fit within the Vanderpeet box. It is essential that we recognize who and what the rights we speak of are about. There is a ongoing tension, and you see it in the test advanced by Canada. There is an ongoing tension between the notion of reconciliation and the defining of inherent authority and this need to tell people who they are. At some point, we have to acknowledge, we have to accept and respect in our uh, collection of authorities that we've provided to the court today, we have included the Department of Justice guidelines in which, for the first time, an Indigenous Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, raised as of 2018 that Canada has to stop requiring a decision by a court to recognize inherent jurisdiction. We say, Nan says, that it is of the utmost importance that in defining jurisdiction over children, in upholding sections 21 and 22 of the Act, and recognizing the appropriate usage of section 9124, that you will see this exercise over children as a unique example of an existential reality for the care of Indigenous people over their children. So we accept and respect that, and we move from there. And in my submission, the most important piece that should come out of this case is we shouldn't be held. The notion of inherent authority should in no way be limited by the need to create some kind of restrictive, uh, principled approach 
it needs an expansive approach because of its very de definition going to the question of human dignity. In my respectful submission, and at the end of the day, and I'm wrapping up, this case and this act becomes actually an easy question of constitutionality because it involves our children. Thank you very much. The réplique uh, with the Je vais répondre seulement à certains arguments de certains procureurs généraux provinciaux. Euh, je vais d'abord faire un commentaire sur euh, les articles 21-22 et ensuite faire deux commentaires sur euh, l'article 18 pour bien m'assurer que notre position soit comprise suite à certaines interventions aujourd'hui. Euh, ça va dépendre évidemment de la Cour, mais j'aimerais laisser un peu de temps aussi à mon collègue de la PNQL pour euh, certaines représentations des parties autochtones. Alors, sur 21-22, contrairement à ce que le Manitoba affirme, euh, nous disons que lorsque le mécanisme de 21-22 est considéré dans son contexte entier, euh, il ne vise pas à créer un droit absolu. Au contraire, il favorise la réconciliation. Hier, j'en ai déjà parlé, je reviens sur trois mots, prévisibilité, condition et incitatif, euh, pour supporter ce que je dis, prévisibilité, parce qu'en renvoyant à la prépondérance fédérale, on euh, simplifie les règles du jeu, on assure une prévisibilité pour les parties intéressées. On a entendu aujourd'hui le... le L'avocat de Opitiwan en parlait justement. Condition parce que ce ne sont pas toutes les lois autochtones euh, qui sont nécessairement incorporées par envoi dans le cadre de ce mécanisme. Elles doivent satisfaire certaines conditions, dont l'intérêt de l'enfant, l'article 23. Je ne reviens pas là-dessus. Mais plus important encore, le juge Casier en a parlé tantôt, suivant l'article 20, paragraphe 3, un accord de coordination doit avoir été conclu ou à défaut des efforts raisonnables dans la période de 12 mois qui a suivi la demande pour conclure un tel accord. Ce qui m'amène au troisième point, c'est que ce mécanisme, donc, crée clairement un incitatif euh, pour les parties de négocier de bonne foi et de concilier leurs intérêts. Oui. Je peux vous, juste vous arrêter sur le, cette question technique. S'il si n'y a pas d'accord de coordination et s'il si n'y a pas des efforts raisonnables dans les 12 mois, selon le deuxième, on comprend que la loi, le texte législatif, euh, autochtone ne peut pas être doté de force de loi fédérale. La prépondérance ne s'applique pas. Exact. Est-ce que, quelle serait la force de loi du texte législatif en l'absence de ceci? Bien, vous savez, la position du Parlement et la position du Canada ici, c'est que ce sont euh, des lois qui sont adoptées euh, indépendamment de cela, euh, sous euh, l'égide du droit à l'autonomie gouvernementale qui est protégé par l'article 35. Et dans ce sens-là, elles avaient force de loi autonome suivant euh, ce droit. Euh, et alors, à ce moment-là, ce serait un autre test de conflit qui s'appliquerait, comme on sait, le test de Sparrow. Alors, je vais juste terminer sur 21-22 en disant qu'il n'y a aucun… Euh, dans le fond, ça favorise la réconciliation en canalisant les efforts, manifestement, au fin de faire cette réconciliation, tout en prévoyant un mécanisme pour débloquer euh, les, les impasses. Euh, dans les submissions de euh, Manitoba, il n'y avait pas d'exemple concret pour démontrer que ce processus-là ne pouvait pas effectuer de réconciliation euh, des intérêts en cause. S'il y a des difficultés qui se soulèvent, on peut penser qu'il y en aura des difficultés d'application, mais les discussions tripartites servent à ça, justement. Euh, et il est toujours possible de conclure un accord après un an. Euh, C'est l'article 20, paragraphe 7. Il y a deux accords qui sont conclus à ce jour. Euh, je dis aussi que le test de Sparrow, vous le savez bien, incorpore une notion de consultation déjà. Alors, on peut penser qu'une absence de pourparler, euh, 
euh, au fin de concilier les intérêts en cause, serait justement un facteur qui ferait en sorte que le test de Sparrow ne serait pas rencontré de toute façon. Alors, ça, c'est pertinent de garder ça en tête, Sparrow, euh, page 11-19. Euh, en réponse à la Cour britannique, euh, sur le lien entre 18 et 21-3, je veux vraiment être clair. Comme j'ai dit hier, il y a deux niveaux à la question de la validité de 18. Le pouvoir de faire l'affirmation et le bien fondé de l'affirmation. Si on se limite à la question du pouvoir, est-ce que 21 et 22 peuvent exister sans 18? Oui. 21 et 22 ont leur propre validité. Évidemment, on regarde l'article 91-24, dans la mesure où eux aussi cherchent à soutenir l'exercice des droits ancestraux. Ce que j'ai dit hier, c'est si la Cour va sur le bien fondé et estime que la prémisse exprimée à l'article 18, prémisse qui fonde le reste du régime, si cette prémisse-là n'est pas bien fondée, évidemment, le reste s'ensuit. Mais ça, c'est si la Cour va sur le bien fondé. On vous a dit que c'est nécessaire de le faire pour les raisons qui sont expliquées. Je ne veux pas prendre trop de temps. Paragraphe 4 de notre réplique au PG explique pourquoi on pense qu'il faut aller sur le bien fondé. Euh, je vais terminer en disant, en, en, avec l'Alberta, la, que euh, peu importe que ce soit un droit spécifique ou générique, la loi doit être considérée valide. Euh, paragraphe 6 de notre réplique explique pourquoi. C'est seulement si la Cour estime qu'aucun groupe au Canada pourrait avoir le droit euh, que, manifestement, la loi pourrait être jugée invalide. Je, je m'arrête là-dessus. Je veux juste laisser un petit peu de temps à mon collègue. Good afternoon. I wonder if you'll give me more than 13 seconds, just a bit, about a minute. I'll give you a minute. Thank you very much. The, uh, just a, three things I want to say. First, regarding coordination agreements, the record in the Court of Appeal, especially the affidavits from our clients, show the non-collaboration and the refusal, despite the fact the Court of Appeal decision wasn't uh, suspended, the refusal of Quebec to cooperate in making such agreements. And the same kind of... Uh, refusal happened in the case of Abitjuan. We have heard lots of arguments. Uh, the issue, is, as Judge Justice Brown said, is not the applicability of political, uh, of, sorry, provincial laws, and so we ask you not to go into the issues of double aspect in Section 88 of the Indian Act, but the issue is, and we ask that you do rule on it, it's not uh, outside this case, on the inherent right to self-government, and specifically regarding the generic or universal right to uh, self-government as regards the support and care for First Nations children, youth, and, and families wherever they reside. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maître Chahi. Monsieur Juge en chef, je crois bien avoir eu l'occasion hier de dire tout ce que j'avais à dire d'important et je n'ai rien d'important à ajouter aujourd'hui. Alors, j'aimerais remercier la Cour pour son attention. Alors, pas surpris que la Cour va prendre le dossier en délibéré. Je remercie à tous les procureurs pour leurs arguments fort intéressants. Alors, le dossier est pris en délibéré. Merci. Bonne fin de journée.